Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. And we're here nice in the cozy fall season. I hope you guys are ready because you're just going to be joined for the next two episodes by me, Trevor Dame, and as always, by Matt Feuerstein. We're just going to do a fun run of shows, just us, you, us two, and you, the listener, or I guess if you have a great listening party, it'll be less cozy. It'll be, unless there's a lot of people contained in a small room when you look, Matt, save me. I, I, I'm floundering here. Help me out. I mean, usually I, I, I um, support you when you are um, self-deprecating and I build you up. But no, you were kind of floundering right there, let's be honest. <laughs> um, so wait, so this is the podcast where we review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I was hoping it was the podcast about chain restaurants because that I could really get in on. That's I like two kinds of chains, Matt. Chain wrestling and chain restaurants. Ooh, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, yeah. Do you think anybody has through the years listening parties? If so, I got to come up with some good weasel puns to tell everybody about it. <laughs> that's a refer. Think- that's a reference for the old folks out there. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine – I think we've been told this movie once or twice, but I bet you there's definitely been like a very bored, aggravated spouse that's been forced to listen to us. Like in like, the like – like, long... yeah, road trip, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Boy, that spouse is probably extremely aggravated. Yeep. I'm still – I'm still – I'm still... I apologize, spouses of the world that are being about to be bored for two and a half to three hours. I'm still wondering if there are any women that listen to this podcast, like a single one that listens to it regularly. I have yet to see any evidence of it. I I mean I look at my Twitter and I, I didn't realize but I was just checking the analytics one day and it actually tells you how many people of each gender are like following you on Twitter and – I imagine my Twitter probably appeals to more women than this, and it is it is unlikely that many women are listening to this, I would imagine. Yes, uh, definitely unlikely that many are. The question now is, are any? Um, <laughs> yeah, because if we're at like a full zero, I don't know. I think, uh, Trevor, you need to start posting some pics of yourself maybe to get this thing f- afloat a little bit. That would scare everybody away. No. But – you know, we don't really need to promote because we're on a great podcast network and that's the pro wrestling only podcast network, Matt. And there's a lot of great shows, but one thing I always like to do is spotlight when a new show joins us. And we do have a new show since the last time we were on. In fact, wrestling's changed quite a bit since the last time we did a show. And one thing that's changed is AEW now has a TV show. And guess what, Matt? Pro Wrestling Only now has a podcast devoted just to covering that TV show. It's called Boom Goes the Dynamite, and they are covering every episode of AEW Dynamite on TNT. So even though I think Pro Wrestling Only is probably like the best network in terms of covering just a crazy wide range of old wrestling from all over, like chances are you will find at least one show covering a topic you like. We also got stuff like this, which is, you know, if you're into the newest, hippest cool kids thing and i'm making cool hand gestures right now to indicate how hip i am then we've got you covered with that too what are cool hand gestures are you like i don't know dabbing 
I'm doing that thing that uh, Jack Evans did on the show we're covering tonight where he kind of like touches his thumbs. I think he's trying to do an N maybe. Yeah, G and an, a G and an N, but neither of them look like either of those letters. Yeah, that is cool and hip because that was only 15 and a half years ago. <laughs> that's like that's where most of my references and interests get locked into about that's about like the most recent thing before you, my brain kind of crusted over. So, you know, that's, that's probably pretty- that's probably fair. I was like 2004. I was 21 or almost 21 when the show that we're reviewing happened. So, yeah, I think I just I stopped developing as a human right right then and there. <laughs> I definitely peaked there, but we this is a really interesting show and a really interesting time in a uh, Ring of Honor's history. So, before we get to the show proper, there's a few news little things that happened between the last show and this one. First one I'll go to is from the Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer wrote spanky got a huge reaction in lexington massachusetts last week and dave is referring to the last show we covered round robin challenge three dave continues they want to use him when available they being ring of honor but it's hard to book him because zero one who he's under contract to doesn't give him his dates until late the they're resigned to the idea that when they have a show and he's off they'll plug him in as an attraction but won't be able to do much in the way of storylines with him so I, this is just a little interesting one because, as something we mentioned in, I think on the at our best Rob Feinstein episode, um, Ring of Honor would have some problems booking zero one talent for a little while in two thousand four, because I, I not necessarily completely due to what you would think, but more because I believe uh, zero one's parent company was suing. Uh, Rob Feinstein and our video over selling some of their ta- tapes without permission. And so at that time, Zero One decided, well, we're not allowing, we're not going to allow his company to use him, even though at this point he was technically said to have been gone. But I obviously, I guess, once it was very clear he was gone for real, that got sorted out because in 2005, we got a fair bit of spanky in Ring of Honor. Well, also at the end of 2004, didn't like Zero One sort of stop existing as we knew it so like that might that might have something to do with it right kind of like changed ownership change and then it kind of went away for a little while didn't it uh i I mean zero one i believe is still around in some form right right but it came back but i know that like hashimoto like stopped being in control of it and from what i understand i'm pretty sure like they didn't run shows for a while yeah i mean i would not be the best person to ask for this there hopefully there's some zero one podcast out there that can answer this question maybe uh, here's a suggested name counting is fun the zero one podcast there, i like it <laughs> that one's free um geez, that's the worst thing i've ever said but. no what are you kidding me you said so many worse things <laughs> this episode um next up another note from the observer dave Meltzer wrote Ricky Steamboat hasn't agreed to do a match with CM Punk yet, but he's also getting in better shape and has been more agreeable to doing more and more with him to keep the storyline alive. Steamboat is strong on the on the idea that he doesn't want to come in and have a bad match, and Sapolsky has offered him the idea of doing a tag or six-man, so he just has to do his trademark stuff. Gabe Sapolsky is trying to push Steamboat as their version of Terry Funk. So, Matt, a question I want to ask you is, obviously, doing a show in 15 years later, we have the advantage of knowing how this plays out, and Steamboat doesn't really do any kind of official match. He still does physical angles. So the thing I want to ask you, Matt, and 
I, there's no way for sure that we could know this, but in your personal opinion, knowing that Steamboat years later would do some good matches in WWE, um, do you think Steamboat honestly at this point wasn't sure if he'd be able or want to do physical stuff again? Or do you feel like maybe in the back of his mind he's like, maybe I shouldn't do a match here when if I do come back, there's a payday problem. The, the money's probably coming back in WWE to do that one more match. Hmm. That's a tough one because, like, when he finally did come back, was it this huge drawing, like, card, this huge payday? I mean, yes, he worked WrestleMania, but would this, would wrestling a match in ROH first have prohibited that from happening? I don't know. I guess it's hard to know what the mindset is of a guy. I. I think that maybe he did think that about there being a payday, but I also think that he probably was a little insecure about coming back and doing a match, and probably the WWE money just made him less insecure about it. See, I'm, I, I should have gone and researched it, but I vaguely recall, I think Steamboat, the idea was Steamboat brought up the idea of him coming back for one more match to WWE and not the other way around. I might be wrong about that, but... It's interesting in this because in recent episodes when, when we've looked back at some of the news, some of the reporting has been like, you know, Steamboat's scared about doing stuff because he's worried about, you know, looking bad if he's not able to be his old self and stuff like that. Was there an insurance and, policy involved as well? Yeah, see that that's another great point. Lloyd's of Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's yeah, of London, yeah. There were lots of wrestlers who were like, Well, I could do something, but then I'd probably lose this sweet, you know. Yeah, like you said, Lloyd's of London insurance settlement. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any way we can know for sure. I will say, watching the Ring of Honor um, shows of this period, we've seen Steamboat every show. It seems like he gets a little more confident and does a little bit more. And to me, that feels like a genuine, like he's just getting more excited and more into it and more like, yeah, I can take a bump. Yeah, I can throw some offense. And, you know, that could just be the natural progression of the angle. But to me, watching these shows, it has felt like maybe he is kind of realizing mid-storyline that, yeah, maybe I can do this again. So What happened on tonight's show, uh, the show we're reviewing today, tonight, is kind of a match, even if it's not officially one. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing, which was um, – it's funny that it, that Observer story says, you know, that Gabe was looking at Steam pushing Steamboat as their version of Terry Funk because one of the things I was thinking about during the angle is, you know, interviews Steamboat gave or news bits around this time was, again, he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to have a good full match with uh, somebody like CM Punk. But, and this is no offense to Terry Funk, who is an, one of the all-time greatest wrestling talents of all time, in my opinion, like an all-time legend, but... I think after watching this show that at this moment in, in his career, Ricky Steamboat could have had a better match with CM Punk than Terry Funk did in 2003, which we saw in Ring of Honor. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, better than in 2003, for sure. Better than what Steam, what Funk was doing in like 94, 95, 97. Um Possibly that too, honestly. Um, but Terry Funk, you know, for whatever he had lost in, you know, maybe his execution by that point, he was still willing to take a lot of bumps in the, in that era. And would Steamboat have been able to do that? That's a better question. Yeah, and, and I mean, the Terry Funk match with Punk was not bad by any means. But I just, I was just thinking in the sense of 
if you're if you're steamboating, your mindset is I don't want to embarrass myself. No one like said that Funk Punk match was embarrassing, and I think he could have at least done as well as that. Right, but Steamboat, you know, in terms of like athleticism and execution, like that was sort of his thing, you know. Yeah. So so there there's a different standards. Obviously, Terry Funk is one of the greatest of all time, like you said. But Steamboat's greatness comes really more from his like physical grace. And his athleticism, in a way, you know, Funk was obviously very athletic, but it was a little different, right? Funk could do the brawling stuff, the bumping yeah. stuff, and Steamboat really had to, you know, be a smooth wrestler to really live up to the Ricky Steamboat legacy. Yeah, you're right. Like, Steam, I mean, Funk was highly adaptable, partly by necessity, which is why he had such a long career, where Steamboat kind of only ever really had to be the one thing. And maybe didn't in his mind think he could be anything else, but possibly. I mean, no. certainly, if you're coming back as a nostalgia act, that's what people want to see from you. If yeah. if if he could have successfully like transitioned into like a new version of Ricky Steamboat, that would have been pretty cool. But maybe he just wasn't something that was occurring to him. And uh, our last little newswire bit. I mean, our last news story is from the Ring of Honor newswire. I just, it's dumb. I just like this. It just made me chuckle. This is from May 17, 2004's Ring of Honor Newswire. In the Newswire, they wrote, Ox Baker told Ring of Honor officials that he's looking for someone to pass the heart punch down to. Okay, whatever. That's the entire news story. They literally wrote, okay, comma, whatever, period. And I just... I need to know the backstory. <laughs> like, like, are you trying to promote it? Are you trying to poo-poo it? If so, ew, isn't there only one guy doing both? So, like, why are you... I mean, Gabe, what, what, what's, what's up? <laughs> I mean, I've had people tell me that, like, <laughs> this Oxbaker stuff, like, he just stumbled around and, like, it wasn't planned. I mean, I, I have no idea. Like, it's just... Why, then, why do you put it in the newswire, then? <laughs> it's the most perplexing thing. It, it is so weird. Like, this... I don't know. It's, it's interesting. But... What's arguably more interesting – well, I wouldn't argue even. It's just flat out more interesting – is the show we're covering today, and that is Generation Next. It took place May twenty second, 2004, in a tent outside the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory in front of a reported crowd of, according to The Observer, it was 450. We'll get into a few notes that it kind of – there's a a bunch of variants in the reported numbers for the show, but somewhere between 350 and 500. We always use the observer attendance, which in this case is 450. So yeah, they ran in a tent. So yeah, we have a uh, lot of different reporting about why and they were in a tent and the circumstances around that. We got reporting from the observer, from the torch and from PW insider, uh, they, they agree on a lot of the major points, but they all bring a little bit of different information to the table. So um, I, I guess we'll I'll read all of these. And yeah, I think I think this is good. So um, we'll go to the Observer first. And they wrote the 522 show in Philadelphia, which once again went head to head with a WWE house show, was designed to build a new main group called Generation Next of leader Alex Shelley plus Austin Aries, Roderick Strong, and Jack Evans. The show drew about 450 fans outdoors in a makeshift tent next to the National Guard Armory since the building was being used for storing ammunition. Some blamed the Philadelphia Flyers' seventh game of the Stanley Cup semifinals for hurting the crowd, but a large percentage of the Ring of Honor fan base comes to Philadelphia shows from outside the Philly area. 
Ring of Honor has a real challenge on its hands right now because now it has to battle that syndrome that their stars are gone. Sapolsky thinks that there has been a backlash from not running Philadelphia enough, and they are going to try and run more often, which means to find a new building since the armory simply isn't available often enough for them. We got negative comments in the in that people who purchased general admission tickets at the show had to stand, and by the time you saw Alex Shelley out for the fourth time, it got tiring, and standing to watch wrestling for a four-hour show is tough, even with good weather. So yeah, that's the first, that's the observer's coverage of it. And I have definitely stood for the entire uh, for an entire ROH show multiple times. If the show's good enough, you really don't mind it too much. I stood for Joe and Kobashi the whole time, and that was after having a retail job where I had to stand all day prior to that. So my back hurt a lot, but it was fine. It was worth it. <laughs> you, and I mean, people go yeah. to music festivals where. They stand for hours and hours and hours. Uh, I will say this is a bit of a different situation where I think fans were coming to the show expecting to be able to sit down. And they were because, in fact, Matt, as we will see in the next couple reportings, fans did not know when they were coming to the show what they were in for. I'll go to the torch next. Um, Wade Keller writes. Ring of Honor's May 22nd event in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the National Guard Armory had to be moved outdoors under a tent due to the mobilization of troops in the National Guard Armory. Ring of Honor did not announce that the show would be held outdoors ahead of time, perhaps fearing it would discourage walk-ups. In fact, many wrestlers didn't know ahead of time either. As it turned out, the weather was pleasant and it led to a unique atmosphere for Ring of Honor. The venue wasn't the only challenge Ring of Honor officials faced. They were also head up against a WWE Raw house show the same night, just as happened in St. Paul, Minnesota last month. They drew between 350 and 500, according to various estimates. Regarding whether WWE running head-to-head with Ring of Honor twice in the last month or two is a coincidence or not, one wrestler says, quote, Vince McMahon would think it was beneath him to officially acknowledge Ring of Honor as enough of a threat to intentionally do that, unquote. So... First off, like Matt, do you think there's anything to the ethics of not telling people ahead of time that like, oh yeah, you think you're going to the armory? Uh, it's actually going to be in this tent next to the armory. Like the wrestlers and the fans not knowing that that's a bit skeevy. Like I understand being afraid of people not walking up because of the idea of oh we're going to go to a tent, but at the same time. If, if you came with a ticket and thought, oh, I'm going to sit down in the back and whatever in a nice indoor building, and instead you, you're like, oh, your general admission, you're going to be standing outside essentially to watch the show. I'd be a little – I mean I would roll with it, but I can, I can see some people being understandably like miffed at that. Yeah, I mean you should definitely – you should definitely say if you know in advance that that's going to happen, obviously, like to the best of your ability. And, you know, they had the website. They could have done it. I I have a feeling that probably most of the fans didn't mind that much. Um, but sure, it could have hurt the, the walk-up. I mean, it's the price you pay. That's, that's life. Yeah. I don't think you should withhold pertinent information because you're afraid of that. I don't think that's the, the right thing to do. Clearly, it wasn't the end of the world that they did that. But, yeah, if you're just asking me purely what's the right thing to do, I think – yeah, tell it. You know, being open and honest about what's what's going to happen is the right thing. Um, uh, one, I wanted to add one other thing about some of what you were saying because you mentioned that they were worried about there was a backlash because they hadn't run Philly enough. 
Yeah. So they were going to run it more often. And it's interesting because they did run Philly more often for the rest of 2004. They want, they ran it in June for a uh, an unplanned reason because they weren't allowed to run Baltimore. Then they ran it again over the summer. Then they ran it again in October and December. But the funny thing is, is that by 2005, they were back to running it very sparingly. I think they ran it, I'm trying to think, maybe only three times actually in 2005 off the top of my head. I might be wrong about that, but that's how I remember it. And I remember people saying like, oh, the Philly market is is kind of dead for us until the CZW feud in 2006 brought it back to life. So it's just interesting that, uh, to see like the trajectory of ROH's relationship with Philadelphia. And, that, and it's also interesting when you think about you, Philly was Ring of Honor's home base to start with. And then their first regular secondary market afterwards was Boston. And we're not going to we're not too far away from them kind of saying goodbye to Boston for quite a while, too. So it, it, it's it's interesting how in the next year, how much Ring of Honor's touring t- touring situation changes, where it becomes more of a New Jersey, Chicago is the big markets, where in the first couple of years, it was mainly Philly and Boston. Yeah. And then, I mean, pretty soon it'll be New York City also yeah. as their number one market. And uh, yeah, really, it's, it's really CZW that brings Philly back for ROH, like I said. Um, and finally, that brings us to Mike Johnson, who had the most to say about this. He generally on local, I think he actually, I, I believe someone right before we started recording caught me on Twitter and said, oh yeah, I was on a Mike Johnson bus tour to Generation Next. So he had, obviously Mike was very close to this situation because he did, would at this point, I guess, run some bus tours to events, including Ring of Honor ones. Um, Mike Johnson wrote in PW Insider, some background. With less than a week's notice, Ring of Honor learned they had lost their scheduled venue for the 522 show when the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory was mobilized. That basically means the military was going to use it, so outside events aren't allowed in. It was the latest in black clouds hovering over the 522 event as WWE was in town running a Raw brand house show, the Philadelphia Phillies had a home game, and the Philadelphia Flyers ended up playing a sudden-death NHL playoff game in Tampa Bay. Feeling that if they had to cancel the date, it would have caused more damage to the company when they couldn't afford it, Ring of Honor got permission to hold the show in the backyard of the armory, and with only several days' notice, rented out a huge tent to cover the ring lighting equipment and equipment. He used a little editing there, Mike. Uh, Several rows of fans. As Anyway, uh, I am told the situation cost a great deal for the promotion, but they felt they needed to go through with the show. Although plans were sealed on Tuesday or Wednesday to hold the show outdoors, the promotion denied there were problems with the building when approached by PWInsider.com on Wednesday. As one source said that whatever building issues that were with the armory, they were, quote, resolved, unquote. Resolved ended up being the tent idea, although before that decision was made, they did make overtures to book the ECW arena as well, which didn't end up working out. Many of the wrestlers were unaware of any changes until they arrived that afternoon at the armory. I am under the belief that the promotion denied the building issues in order to protect the attendance, which was already hurting from the other factors, from being affected by the predictions of bad weather all week. My personal feeling is that they should have announced something anyway, if for no other reason than to give the fans who had purchased tickets a chance to prepare for being outdoors for several hours. Although other than mosquitoes and the like, it wasn't a harsh situation to deal with if you didn't have allergies. 
The weather, which ended up being nice and cool, allowed fans to enjoy the show without the usual heat issues involved in sitting in a small packed building. However, if the weather had been rainy and wet, Ring of Honor would have had several hundred unhappy fans sitting outdoors without notice and with every right to ask for a refund, in my opinion. And that would have been an irresponsible maneuver. Thankfully for them, the weather was the one place where Ring of Honor hasn't had bad luck as of late. Although there was plenty of snickering jokes about having a show under a tent by those live before the show began, in truth, the setting and the weather create a much more relaxed and fun atmosphere than some of the regular Ring of Honor venues. There was none of the stuffiness that sometimes pervades live Ring of Honor events among their fan base, and none of the sweltering heat. Although the show appeared to draw in the 350 range, Ring of Honor sources listed the crowd as just under 500, the promotion was happy enough with the way the show came off live that there was talk of doing additional outdoor events down the line. Now, Matt, my memory for this kind of stuff is horrible. Did Ring of Honor ever do additional outdoor Ring of Honor events? I don't think they did. There was one um, in a tent in 2006 in Connecticut, I believe. Glory by Honor 5, Night 1. Um that was also in a tent. That actually, I wasn't there, but that actually might have been a rainy day now that I think about it. But I forget what the reason was. But yes, that was there. So there was at least one more in a tent. As far as outdoor shows, they did, I, they did run for a few years in a row shows uh, you know, in the later era, in the Sinclair era, at this minor league baseball stadium here in Brooklyn. Um, they, call, they would call them, they would funnily enough call them Field of Honor shows because it was on a baseball field. But um, those were fully outdoors, like as in like no roof or anything. Um, it, it is interesting that uh, it, I, I guess it adds a little background where from what Mike Johnson's saying, I didn't go back and look up the weather reports from this time because I'm not that pathetic. I'm not that devoid of other things to do that would be that would be what that would be something <laughs> but but it does sound like there was forecast for rain like rain was uh, judging from things i've read that people were expecting rain it was like a happy surprise that in fact didn't rain on the show so that also kind of puts the choice not to tell people about it into a bit more of a negative light the idea that well, we can't tell people because they might get caught in the rain, and we kind of want them to be caught in the rain. That that's you know because that means they're at the show. That that's, uh, that's yeah. That would be I would be pissed about that if it was like a <laughs> yeah. cool, a cold, rainy, like windy day, and I show up like expecting to be sitting inside of a hot building, and I am completely unprepared for the weather. Man, that yeah, that would be annoying. That would kind of ruin the show. But I, I will say that the crowd, for them, like you, you hear these couple of comments from people at the show that didn't like standing or stuff. But most of the crowd did have chairs. It was more in the back, and the crowd sounded lively and like they were having a great time for the most part. So yeah, the, yeah, I'd the, the, say the crowd. He probably wasn't as loud as it would have been inside the building, but it was a pretty solid reaction to most of the stuff. Yeah, especially for a crowd, you know, that's probably a bit lower than the usual Ring of Honor Philly crowd. It still sounded, you know, pretty loud, and they didn't seem dampened literally or figuratively, Matt. I think um, I think part of it is they're comparing it to the most recent show they had in Philly, which was Final Battle, which was the biggest ROH audience yet up to that point. Like a really huge crowd, like over a thousand people, right? So, yeah. so I mean – in comparison, this seems like a huge failure, even though, you know, play, compared to where they where the crowds they draw most of the recent venues, it's not that bad. And uh, the last thing before we get to the show proper is they, uh, in that Mike Johnson story, he referenced uh, trying to book ECW Arena. And you might wonder um, 
well, why didn't Ring of Honor book ECW Arena at this time, especially since I think they ran it later? And I saved a quote from around the time of before the second year anniversary show from Mike Johnson, where he kind of explains that. And this will be the last news quote I have. But uh, Mike Johnson writes, Ring of Honor ran into a snag in its search for running more events in Philadelphia. With the National Guard Armory not available again until the fall after their announced 522 date, Ring of Honor was looking to book a date at the ECW Arena. The venue turned down the promotion, citing the fact that CZW and 3PW already run there monthly. 3PW's Todd Gordon confirmed that the two promotions returned to the venue after the fallout of the Philadelphia Wrestling Wars and eviction of XPW. Both promotions agreed to rent to a rent increase in exchange for exclusivity to prevent, quote, oversaturation of the building. No other promotion can get into the building without their consent, which honestly isn't going to happen for Ring of Honor for obvious competitive reasons. World One will be moving to a new Philadelphia location for similar reasons when they run again in April. That show got canceled. Um, when Ring of Honor was formed, the promotion distinctly wanted to stay away from the ECW arena so they weren't in the shadow of ECW. Two years later, that is no longer a concern, but they aren't able to get into the building. So the thing that I, I that really struck home to me reading this is thinking about just comparing it to the news stories we read when Ring of Honor first started, which is how much the Northeast wrestling scene and really wrestling in general changed in, in just a couple of years, where in in 2002, when Ring of Honor started, there was so much Philly wrestling war news, and there was so much stuff about, you know, who's using which old ECW guy and which promotions want to kind of be the replacement ECW and which companies were trying to get away with it to the point where, as it says here, you know, Ring of Honor was like, we don't even want to run the ECW arena because we don't want to be compared to them. And within two years' time, it's like, that's not a concern anymore. Like, no one, Ring of Honor's in a distinct enough position where, they're not worried about the idea that if they run ECW Arena, it's going to make them look like they're copying ECW. Right. Well, it makes but sense. Unfortunately for them, it's too late. Yeah, I mean, but it makes it makes for sense. A while. It makes sense, though, right? Like, it makes sense that they they've they have established their identity. People in the who go to indie wrestling, like they know Ring of Honor. They know Ring of Honor has their own stars, and especially by the time they finally do run the the uh, the ECW Arena. In 2006, at the time, I think it was called the New Alhambra Arena or something. Um, you know, and I think they were able to run it. Was 3PW even still around by 2006? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, you'd think something changed because obviously they did not have this exclusivity rental right anymore. Well, well, point. right, and also the ROH was working with CZW at this point, so CZW obviously gave their blessing for it. They, in fact, had a double header that night. Of uh, and then I think by the time ROH started running that arena regularly for HDNet TV tapings, CZW were they even still running that building at all? They don't run it now, right? CZW they they don't run in that building. Uh, I I am not aware of much of what CZW does at this point, but mm-hmm. I mean I, a lot of places run ECW Arena now. It's under its what 1800th name change and renovation or something, but right, yeah. I um, but I, 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 for some reason, I'm gonna actually look this up because I don't want to seem that stupid. But I want to <laughs> see where it looks like. Yeah, it looks like most of their shows now are in New Jersey and not at the and not at the ECW arena. But I don't know how long that's been the case for. It's amazing how much power 
that arena holds over people. I mean, it's a testament to running the same place over and over again and building good memories somewhere because there are still to this day people that are like, wow, I finally get to wrestle in ECW arena. We, you know, you know, to some people it is on that level of a Madison Square Garden, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was a big it was like a really big deal in terms of setting the tone of wrestling in the late '90s and what it became. Um, you know, it's yeah, it's, I think it deserves that status. You know, the place itself isn't much to look at, but what happened there, I think it's it's worthy of uh, of some sort of reverence. It's it's amazing to think that um, how how any building like if if your show is good like people always go you know oh this show has a bad look this arena has a bad location or this is an uncomfortable building or you know whatever but if you have a really great product it does the building doesn't hurt you the product actually helps the building like in the last month uh, I believe. Uh, the Reseda Hall where uh, PWG ran for so many years is starting to be torn down. And I saw a lot of former of talent, you know, tweet about how this is a sad thing and, you know, the kind of wistful for the time they worked there. And by all accounts, you know, that building was not a great building. It was cramped. It got super hot. But the the shows from that period were so good, it created this kind of romance with the building so right and also like uh, the specialness of the crowds for better or worse um back then i just checked by the way it looks like czw hasn't run that building since 2015 hmm. tough times for czw <laughs> um but yeah so that, that that's all the background just know if you haven't seen the show yes it's running in a tent so keep that in your imagination as we go through the show and the start the show opens generation next with for the second straight show, we open with a backstage promo from the prophecy of Allison Danger, BJ Whitmer, and Dan Moth. Danger says tonight's the night. They beat the Second City Saints last week, and they're going to do it again here. Uh, Moth reminisces about joining the prophecy last year. He calls it the day that he turned his career around, and then he, which I guess it kind of did in terms of a kayfabe storyline perspective. Moth recaps what happened on the last show where uh, the Prophecy won the tag titles and then they lost them an hour later. He gets into a big stare down with BJ Whitmer and we get the usual thing they've done a million times where they talk about how they hate each other. But when they work together, they're a great tag team. One of like several big stare downs with BJ Whitmer tonight also. It's getting a little overtime. Um, Moff says, tonight is the most important night in the history of the Prophecy, because if they don't win tonight, it could be the death of the Prophecy, and Danger and Whitmer both act very surprised to hear this. So, By the way, speaking of overdone, this is the second straight DVD that begins with a slow pa- camera pan up the body from feet to head of Alice in Danger. <laughs> Two shows in a row open with that exact same camera shot. It's that is that shit is old. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just funny that it's the literally it's it's basically the same thing from the la- very last show. The same opening. Yeah. Like you, like I didn't even realize that. But yeah, the exact same camera shot to open the show. Um, next, we jump elsewhere backstage for good times, great memories with our host Colt Cabana. His guest is Trent Acid, who Colt points out is now a two-time guest. So. I'm not sure. I didn't go back and look at this. Trent Acid might be the first two-time guest in Good Times, Great Memories history. Um, Colt says that Gary Michael Capetta told him that Trent is now going singles. He's not in a tag team anymore in Ring of Honor. Uh, Trent says he's taking some time off for Trent, and he says he's taking some tea time. 
uh, Colt asked Trent about the who shit in the carnage bag, carnage cruise bag storyline, and Colt wants to know what the turd was like and if it had corn in it. Trent says it was, quote, awesome, and that the carnage crew deserved it. Trent says he knows who did it, but he's not a rat, he's Italian. The carnage crew, all four of them then, barge in, they demand answers for Trent. Trent says that the people who shit in the bag are here in the building tonight, and the carnage crew then says, you know, to ask Trent, bring them to the ring later tonight. They leave, and then Trent checks on Colt, who we find was hiding under his desk during all of this. Trent assures Colt that everything is cool and that he, he's got plans for tonight. I'm really was I was really unclear about where Trent Acid like falls in this whole thing. Like, why does he know about it? Why is he the one that's kind of announcing this? Obviously, later on, he's going to be involved in the angle. Like, what does he have to do with any of this? I don't really understand. I will say he does have a marijuana themed T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think like um. Obviously, he doesn't join the new Carnage crew, so it's not like he knew about it because he was in on it. I guess maybe it was just maybe he walked by and caught them and like enjoyed watching them shit in a bag, and then was like, "Don't worry, guys, I'll I'll keep it to myself." I, I don't know, but yeah. And also, and also, how did the Carnage crew like know like that he like like were they just like did they always just listen at the door with like a cup to the door every time Good Times Great Memories is recorded, and they're like, "Oh no, this guy knows about our poop thing." And they, they was barged it revealed in. on the on a recent show that that Trent Acid knew somehow. I'm I'm not sure. I vaguely that might have been a thing. I, I don't I, I don't remember hearing that, but I suppose but, I could have missed it. Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird wrinkle though that Trent Acid is strangely involved with like this angle that he's just basically the deep throat of who shit in the Carnage Cruise bags, and yet he doesn't really become involved in the storyline much after this. Like to my memory, so it, yeah, really weird situation, but. Um, then the show launches. We're finally under the tent. We're seeing what's happening live. Uh, the ring crew express make their way out to the ring, followed by the Christopher street connection escorted by Ariel. So I guess that period where they said ring of honor was, we reported in an earlier show that the word was ring of honor was going to cool out booking the Christopher street connection because of the Feinstein thing. Feels like they're confident enough to put them back on the show. We're told that these two teams are going to be part of a tag team scramble tonight. And on commentary, Gabe tells us that tonight's show, Generation Next, is going to be about eight pieces of up-and-coming talent facing off against each other in matches drawn at random, and that the live fans are going to be given ballots to vote on who impresses them the most. Gabe runs down the four up-and-coming matches we're going to see tonight. Jack Evans versus Roderick Strong, Alex Shelley versus Izzy, Austin Aries versus Hydro, and Jimmy Jacobs versus Nigel McGuinness. Uh, Mark Nolte, who joins Gabe on commentary, says that the Gabe Christopher Street connection, uh, he says about the Christopher Street connection that Adrian Street is rolling in his grave and he's not even dead. One of many timely references Mark will make. Well, it's better show. than when people – who was the one who said the Don Morocco was rolling over in his grave and they didn't even <laughs> know that he wasn't dead? Like, yeah. yeah. So at least Mark has that one, that going for him. Yeah, the other – like, Don Morocco's looking down and smiling. Oh, oh yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, there was um, another line by Mark Nolte. So the Christopher Street connection do, does their usual thing where they like start making out with each other. And Mark goes, Chris, is it normal for the gay community to act like this in public? And I'm like, to act like what? Like kiss each other? Like what? what is the thing that they're doing that you find abnormal? Uh He's trying hard not to sound homophobic, but he doesn't do a good job of it. 
not since AJ Styles has someone acted about used the phrase the gay community with such disgust which isn't normal for the gay community to act like this in public i don't know about i don't know about these gay this gay community gabe yeah. they'll have to set me straight on it so to speak right and like just like acting like it's weird for two like two gay lovers to kiss each other like i don't know anyway but it, it's par for the course for how they're reacted to in Ring of Honor. Yes, I, I mean, it's certainly nowhere near as bad as uh, what some commentators have said in the past. Yeah. Um, so right at that moment, Roderick Strong, Jack Evans, Alex Shelley, and Austin Aries hit the ring. They attacked the Christopher Street connection. You know, the, that's, the, that's the end of their involvement for tonight. Uh, Shelly gets on the mic and he says there's not going to be a tag team scramble match or any fan voting tonight. He says he doesn't trust putting his career in the hands of the fans. And he says that these four people in the ring right now, they have no need to fight each other. They're the four best athletes in the company. They're the generation next. Alex invite introduces all four one by one. He says he has talent on loan from God. Roderick is the Messiah of the backbreaker. Jack Evans is the man who can defy gravity without even trying. And Austin Aries is the most explosive athlete in the company, bar none. Shelly then has a hold of a flimsy small plastic bag of what he says is supposed to be the fan ballots for the show. And he throws them in the garbage, which is, I think, just a larger plastic bag. (laughs) (laughs) Shelly says Ring of Honor is not a place for freaks. So another bit of... uh, Yeah, that's definitely some homophobia right there. Yeah, or kids in the on the ring crew. Dunn and Marcos take offense and jump in the ring. They say their catchphrase to a huge crowd reaction, like, God, this is another one of those shows where you go, holy shit, the ring crew express, we're over. They get a loud chant before they can even finish talking. Marcos says they're not going to take it anymore, and they attack Generation Next, but within 10 or 15 seconds, they've the Generation Next has dispatched them. Then special K's music starts to play. And as they were supposed to be part of the tag scramble match that was previously scheduled, they come out, Cheech, Hydro, Angel Dust, who's still wearing his neck brace, selling the big pile driver off the scramble cage he took at our best, Izzy, Dixie, and Becky Bayless. Hydro says he doesn't feel in a party mood, which continues his angle that he's getting a bit more serious. Then finally, um, Special K hit the ring, and all of a sudden we get a ref in the ring, and the bell is rung, so we have a completely impromptu match. Uh, I just want to say before before we, before we talk about this match, yeah. I just want to mention. I thought I sort of thought that it was cool. This was almost sort of like a payoff to the "We're not going to take it anymore" tour because, like, like you know, finally they actually are in a moment where it, that matters. You know, like the new uh, generation next is forming. They're coming out. They're basically brushing Dun and Marcos aside, and then Dun and Marcos are like, "Wait." We're still here. We're not going to take this anymore. And I feel like like that sort of pays off. And of course, they still get their asses kicked. But I sort of thought just like that was cool because it was now done in like a very meaningful moment. Um, it sort of was built up to. I agree. And I, I have to think uh, before I was going to throw it to you for the match, I was actually going to ask you kind of what you think about this angle to start off with. Because I think it's interesting what Gabe did in the sense of, um, first off, Generation Next, when you think he created this entire fake show, he created a fake lineup. We only get one of those four announced Generation Next matches that I read off earlier that Gabe said we're going to have on this show. And this whole idea of there's going to be a fan ballot and all this stuff, Gabe creates this entire fake show concept knowing it's going to be used with this idea that it's something for these four guys to hijack and overtake, and which I think is an interesting idea. And also, 
I, I think one reason why Generation Next, why this initial angle works is because it's not done in Ring of Honor frequently up to this point. Like, in a lot of other companies, I don't feel like this would have had as great of an impact because a lot of companies do the whole we're taking over thing over and over again. Like, that's been copied ad nauseum since the days of the outsiders and the NWO. But the fact that in Ring of Honor, almost always you guys get broken in, especially if they're at, like, a lower name level, doing five-minute matches right after intermission – the fact that for once you have these four guys coming in that have done a little bit of spot duty before this, but are basically saying, like, no, we're just going to like do run-ins and cancel matches and get on the mic immediately in front of the live crowd and, and create this whole story that we're not going to, you know, that they're not going to take it, Matt. Um, I, I think it works because it's different for Ring of Honor. I think in another company it might not have worked. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Ring of Honor kind of had uh, was was playing with a bit of a pat hand in the undercards, and this was a kind of a needed and wanted shakeup. So that's why it worked. Yeah, I don't think there was a single fan there that was mad that they didn't get the original concept and lineup. I think this was clearly an upgrade because it felt important. It was a new thing. The execution by Shelley on the mic was good. And I think that it just it's it clearly worked. So I think it was a great idea. I think this is, I think this whole thing, this whole concept, this whole um, angle, and what happens after this show was, I think, just a home run. Like it was, it was, it was worked out as good as I think Gabe could have hoped for. Do you think there was somewhere in that crowd there was at least one fan that quietly to themselves is just disappointed? It's like. I wanted to vote on that piece of paper. Like I thought they'd be <laughs> voting tonight. Like there's got to be one, right? One percent's like I wanted to pick and make my voice be heard. Maybe you know? at maybe at this point, but not by the end of the show. I don't think. I mean, there are probably a lot of people that really wanted to see a really long John Walters versus Jimmy Rave match. <laughs> um, but um, but I don't think anyone was too sad about that voting thing. And I think that's another sign this angle was really well done is and that it was they were listening to what the crowd wanted it because a lot of matches on this card get changed. Things get interrupted. And although there's some live reports that a few fans didn't like Alex Shelley coming out so many times in terms of what I hear watching the DVD, like there are pops for Generation X pretty much every time they interrupt a match and make a new one up on the fly. Like it doesn't sound like anyone gets disappointed. Like there's no bullshit or refund like no one's disappointed at that the cards get changed the way they are like no one's pissed off that they didn't get to see jack evans versus roderick strong although honestly that would have been probably a really fun match to watch but yeah, yeah they're excited for what they're seeing exactly and yeah they, they do something more interesting and one of the most fun matches they had booked which is nigel mcginnis versus jimmy jacobs they they still give the fans yeah that's the one we still get to keep from the four and but what we get now is an, an impromptu opener. Generation next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong defeat Special K of Angel Dust, Dixie, and Izzy via triple pinfall in 754. After Aries hits a 450, Strong hits a big backbreaker variation, and Jack Evans hits the 630. Matt, this is uh, the very first official Generation Next match. What'd you think? Yeah, I think this match is better if you. Think of it more like an angle than a match. Because as a match, you know, it was kind of sloppy. Like, there was a, you know, scramble-esque quality to it, but it wasn't, it wasn't one of the best scrambles in terms of, like, flow. 
Um, they have they have Angel Dust wearing a neck brace as he wrestles, which, as much as I like this angle, I thought that was pretty dumb. Um, Ares does pull it off eventually during the match, though. Yes, but even just that concept is so silly to me. Um, but there are definitely cool moves going on. At first, I feel like the crowd doesn't totally know what to make of it. Um, Evans is like flip bumping like crazy on like every little thing. He like takes a big flip bump at the beginning. <laughs> um, but you know, like they, they, they go into some of their big stuff, you know, it, um, it's really just a series of big moves at a certain point. Izzy does like a, a springboard flip dive. Evans does a reverse hurricanrana on Izzy. Um, even through this match, Gabe is noting like Hydro, he seems more serious on the outside, which you really can't tell too much on camera, but obviously Gabe knows where he's going with it. Um, once it breaks down, it sort of ends with um, a bunch of moves, and then they kind of do a a consecutive move thing where Ares hits a 450 on Dixie, Strong hits a backbreaker on Angel Dust, and then Jack Evans hits a 630 on, on, on Izzy, for, and they get kind of a triple pin. So yeah. I didn't. I didn't think this was a good match, honestly. But I don't think it really mattered that much. It was a cool segment, and uh, it got the point across. Uh, during the match, at some point, Mark Nolte on commentary says this match doesn't really have any flow to it, and I, I think I would agree there. It, it, like you said, is just basically a collection of spots. It. I feel like we've seen better from scrambles, and it's a little disappointing, com- considering the talent involved. But I still think it was perfectly enjoyable it's like a middle of the road match but the one thing i was kind of surprised by was that i would say special k got 50 or maybe 60 percent of the offense in this match and it doesn't matter that much especially because you know like you just said generation x gets a really strong basically triple pin win for this match but i still kind of feel like this is an example of something that happens in indie wrestling, which is guys kind of get paid in their push. And so it's kind of hard to book three guys like Special K and then tell them to come out and be like your whole – the whole reason you come out tonight is basically to get squash in three minutes. You, it's kind of hard to tell guys that when they're already not working for much money or any money in some cases. But at the same time – if, if I was booking this, I probably would have, especially knowing that these guys are going to wrestle later, I pro- and knowing it's their debut, I would have had them just crush them in three or four minutes. Instead, we actually get a fair bit of a special K offense. But again, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big deal. I, just- I think also the Ring of Honor concept is, I think the idea, especially at the time, was that guys don't necessarily get over as much by winning as they do get over by having good matches. So having a competitive match is more important than looking dominant. Um, I could sort of see that being the mindset. It, it, it's, another funny thing I noticed was, did you notice that uh, the, there's a bit of a difference in how this whole name thing is sold? Because the idea is supposed to be Generation Next is the name of the show and the kind of the gimmick of the show. And then... Alex Shelley and the other three guys come in and just kind of impromptu without anyone knowing, steal the name of the show for themselves and be like, no, the show isn't generation X. Like we're generation X right here. And Gabe on commentary during this match says he acts pretty confused. He's like, I guess this new faction is called generation next. But yet by the time the match is over, the ring announcer is already like announcing them as generation next. Like it's, it's not like, oh, uh, we don't know who to call these people. It's like, no, everyone clearly knows this is Generation Next. 
Yeah, they're just everyone's just right on board with it. Like, all right, hey, we'll we'll do it. Well, I guess that makes it a little different than like the NWO, where they're just actively against it. Like, this is like, okay, well, you're a new group. We'll call you what you want. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, um, that, that's but, another thing. So, oh, sorry, go on. Now, I was going to say, I wonder if the match would have gotten over more, though, if instead of Special K, their opponents were actually the Ring Crew Express. Because the crowd really was hungry for the Ring Crew Express. And they were more over than really any of these guys at the beginning. It, w- it would have changed the dynamic because obviously I think the crowd was really excited to see these guys getting a push generation next. And they were cheering them even when they they were clearly trying to be heels on this night, especially when you look at stuff like at least at some points, like Alex Shelley, even early on, where he's like, we don't need you fans to decide our future. It's like the fans were cheering. They were like, yay, yeah, you don't. You're great. But <laughs> I, I think one of the few acts on this show that could have gotten like heel heat from Generation Next would have been the Ring Crew Express because they're so beloved at this point and they're so sympathetic as underdog baby faces. I think they probably could have gotten a few boos if they really wanted them, if they had like beat down the Ring Crew Express. And they probably could have got, had a, like more of a better traditional match in terms of like getting heat on the Ring Crew Express and stuff. Yeah. Um, after the match, Alex Shelley gets on the mic again and he says, Special K doesn't have a real wrestler in their group. Hydro gets really offended from hearing this. He jumps in the ring. He gets in Shelly's face, and we get a big Hydro chant, actually. Uh, Shelly says, let's do the damn thing, and we get our second impromptu match on the show because Alex Shelly defeats Hydro in 7 minutes, 31 seconds, when he made him submit to the Border City stretch. Um, I thought this match was kind of weird, Matt. Uh, it it wasn't bad at all, but it's mostly on the match. This definitely was not a match, like a lot of times in Ring of Honor or Indies, you see, you can tell when it's guys just trying to make a new star in one night. This was clearly not that. And probably Alex Shelley in the back of his mind had the knowledge that he was going to be involved in a much <clears throat> longer match later in the night. But this was mostly on the mat. And it was mostly Shelley Dominic. I felt like it kind of flipped from the last match where I felt like Special K got a bit too much offense. I thought for a match where... Uh, Hydro made basically made the challenge and was standing up for himself. Uh, he took maybe he took he go, it was on defense probably like 80 90% of this match. So I felt like this is in my opinion this was the match where it probably could have been closer to on 50 50. And it yeah, it's mostly just Shelly putting Hydro through a series of his innovative kind of cool looking unique submissions and Hydro getting an occasional comeback and then Shelly winning clean with the Border City stretch. Uh, not a bad match, but just kind of not what I would have expected going in. But again, it's interesting. This is another period where you can see it's, it's interesting that, you know, Gabe is pushing not just generation next. Those aren't the only four young guys he's pushing at the same time. He's got guys like hydro that are on kind of parallel roads in terms of push at this point. Or what did you think about the match? I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. I liked it definitely more than the opener. Um, I thought it was more of an actual match. Um, you're right that it was mostly Shelley dominating, but this is sort of the beginning of Hydro breaking out, just his willingness to kind of stand up to somebody. And a lot of the match was that Shelley was dominating, but Hydro just wouldn't back down, and he would do some cool moves too. And obviously Shelley ended up winning with the shell shock and the, uh, and the Border City stretch, but it sort of gets Hydro out there as sort of somebody who's who stands out from the rest of Generation Next, and they—I mean, I mean—from the rest of Special K, and they still take a few shows to complete that transition. I think he has a big match on a couple shows from now, and then he finally 
drops special K after, uh, in a, you know, not too long from now. So I think this is just the beginning of a, of a build for Hydro, whereas they're trying to do it sort of all at once for Generation Next. So it makes sense that they're just a little bit ahead of him, but he's starting to, to stand out. So I thought this whole opening segment, even if the matches weren't super great, I thought it was really good. I thought that it, um, it did a good job of establishing a number of different things, and I think it worked for the audience too. Me too. Yeah, it felt different. It felt fresh. And also, it just it felt exciting. You know, it felt like something big was happening, that, you know, guys were on their way up. And I, it what makes all the difference with Generation Next, something that I've been thinking about when I was knowing we were going to do the show, is that, in a sense, he didn't do the Generation Next angle, but Gabe tried to push that new crop of guys in 2003, where... You know, that first batch of guys in Ring of Honor that really led it to its first success in 2002, guys like Loki, Brian Danielson, as they weren't going to be around as much or in some cases at all, you needed to keep obviously replenishing the next generation. And if you look at the next batch of guys Gabe had to book and they gave pushes to, it was like Matt Stryker, John Walters, you know, guys like that. And it just weren't, I mean, I don't, I hate picking on those guys because none of them are bad wrestlers, but they just weren't the right horses. They're not guys that fans are going to accept at a main event. This is a guy that's going to get me to buy a DVD level. And I think one of the things that really works for Generation Next, more than the angle tonight, which I think was done well, but works even more, is that you have a group where all four of these guys are the right horses, in my opinion. And I'm not talking, I'm not Gabe talking about BJ Whitmer being like a horse. These are the good horses. And they all bring something a little bit different to the table. And they're all, you know, they all still have careers to this day. Even Alex Shelley just made a recent comeback. So this, um, honestly, that should have been the name of their stable, the good horses. Um, yeah, but, uh, the new four horsemen, the good horse, the good horses, the good, the good horses. Um, it's interesting though. Um, because the two most successful members of that group, at least in ROH, because clearly, you know, things change over time. But in ROH, it was uh, Aries and Strong, right? And yeah. the guys that, in that group that had actually gotten kind of the slow introduction to this moment and built up were Shelley and Evans. And Aries and Strong, kind of, if you were just watching ROH, they just kind of showed up out of nowhere and got this huge push. So it really showed a lot of faith from Gabe that really, you know, these guys were not part of his shows at all. He didn't really give them like this whole like kind of slow burn, like trial and error kind of thing. They were just in a couple of like pre-show matches and then all of a sudden they were main eventers. It's, it's, not, it's not common, I don't think, for Gabe to do that. But clearly he was right <laughs> in doing that because they sure did rise to the occasion, didn't they? Well, it was it, it was also one of those moments that we've seen in wrestling history where sometimes wrestling sometimes the best gift you can get you can give a promotion is being having your back forced into a wall. Like there's been times in wrestling history where promotions when big names leave where you're kind of forced to get fully behind pushing younger guys. Not saying that Gabe wouldn't have otherwise, but like they had to make this work. Because right now they only had, in terms of their last batch of top stars, they had Joe, they had Punk, they had Homicide. And you can only put those guys in so many combinations against each other. And you had Danielson coming back sometimes this year, but not every show. And so losing AJ, losing Christopher Daniels, losing the other TNA guys that you might have had access to, you know, these guys really did have to, have to get over. I think this year would have been dramatically, like, worse 
This would turn out to be a very good year for Ring of Honor, but it would have been way worse if this didn't work. Like, I feel like he kind of, he was put in a position because it's where he had to do it. And that's really, that that's the, the thing that um guys leaving can help with. Like, if you look at uh, mid-90s WWF, would Vince McMahon have pushed guys like Steve Austin as hard if he had, like, Hulk Hogan still around to fall back on? Because we saw him a couple times previously in the early 90s try and get rid of Hogan and fall back on him. You know, there's always this temptation to, when the second a push doesn't quite take, to go, oh, I'll bring back the guy that was a big star, but he's kind of giving us diminishing returns. You know, when, when guys like AJ and Daniels leave, you had to make these guys work. That is true. Although, you know, I will say this. I don't want to underplay what ROH was going through at this time because obviously it was an existential crisis. Um, but as far as talent leaving, AJ and Daniels, they were big deals. But they still had Joe. They still had Danielson. They still had Punk. They still had Homicide. Um, you know, they would get Loki back shortly. It's not like they were stripped of everybody. You know, it, it, they, they still sort of had their Hulk Hogan. You know what I mean? Um, I guess unless you wanted to say Loki was the Hogan, but I kind of would say it was Samoa Joe at this point. So they didn't have to do it quite as extremely as they did. They kind of – they replaced uh, Styles and Daniels and then some, and I think they, they – it was a big improvement over what it was like even before they lost those guys in terms of their roster and kind of their consistency up and down the card. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, Generation Next coming in now, uh, this marks, I think, like, the best undercard depth Ring of Honor has had up to this point. Between them, Nigel starting to emerge, Jimmy Jacobs starting to emerge, like, that's six guys right there that are genuinely entertaining and interesting all on their way up. And then you got Hydro, who's going to start getting pushed, you know, as Jay Lethal. Th- this is the best kind of, infl- like, injection of undercard talent they've had. Yeah, and like I said, they really lucked out with Aries and Strong because they just popped them in there out of nowhere, basically, and they were over as big-time deals. And I will say this. I think we can unequivocally say this. Roderick Strong, way better looking in 2019 than he was in 2004. So good going, man. This reminds – I actually had this in a note. I was going to save it till later, but I think this is the perfect time now, Matt – to counteract the uh, the toxic masculinity, the the homophobia of a couple straight white men talking about Christopher Street connection early on the show, I thought we'd counter it by having two other straight white men rank Generation Next in order of attractiveness, physical attractiveness, from best to worst. And I want to make clear, in my opinion, and I think you'll probably agree. There is not you, – you can't go wrong with all either on any of them here. There's not a bad pick in the bunch. Yes, but, but, all... but, but my question is, are we ranking them in terms of their 2004 appearance or in terms of their 2019 appearance? Okay, how about we rank them in terms of what, whatever version you think was their best. So each one you can pick in your head Ooh. what do you think their, their prime version – like let's, let's do the best of each of them. So I'll go first. I'll give you some time to think. Okay. Um, I think Jack Evans is a beautiful boy. I think at his best, he, he he's a handsome young fellow. He would be fit right in on the cover of the tiger beat your older sister had under her bed. Jack Evans, number one. Um, number two, I think would be modern Roderick Strong. I think uh, there's a. I, I think you're a little hard on this Roderick Strong. He does have a lot of baby fat on him, but he. 
I would say, you know, Roderick Strong nowadays looks like the jock at your school that you kind of liked, where Roderick Strong at this period looks like the jock at your school you kind of liked maybe after his football career didn't go very well and he's leaning a bit too heavy on the Cheetos. But even then, you know, not an unattractive man. I think number three would be Alex Shelley. I think he's a he's a good-looking guy. And four would be Austin Aries. And uh, that might be controversial. Uh, I don't. Th- I, I think Austin Aries is a, is a good-looking guy too. It's just someone has to be fourth, Austin, and it's you, unfortunately. But that's where I would rank them all time. Hmm, it's tough. First of all, Roderick Strong in two thousand and four. I would say um, it's not just the it's not the, the baby fat necessarily. His whole look was worse. Like the like the shades, like the he kind of had a little goatee going on there. I don't know. It just was, wasn't working for him. But he also doesn't look great in the long trunks, like the the whole leg leg length things. I think he looks way better nowadays in the in the shorts. Yeah, I see. I would say Roger Strong now he does. He looks kind of like a jock that you like. I'd say in two thousand four he looks kind of like the jock that you definitely did not like and was probably a dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which you know, actually, yeah. Which is a worthwhile look for a wrestler. Don't get me wrong. Um, I would probably put it for number one, Roderick Strong. Now, um, I think he's just like a really classically good-looking guy with really, he's a you know very good body, chis- like kind of a toned face, which is definitely not something he had back then. I, I think he looks really good. Uh, the rest of it is tough. I actually might go Alex Shelley for number two. Not his 2004 incarnation, but I think he's had a lot of like cool looks over the years, which is something that I might go for. Um, the last two becomes tough for me. Um, <laughs> this, this is the best podcast we've ever done already. Yeah, just, just for this segment. Yeah, because Evans, so much of his career – he dressed in a way that just was not attractive, right? Um, <laughs> um, like he's he's obviously an attractive guy. I feel like maybe in the past couple of years, Aries and Evans have flipped for me. Whereas, like maybe like five years ago, I would have put Aries ahead. I think now I'd probably put Evans ahead, but it's close. I mean, it's close for all of them. Except I think that Roger Strong is a clear number. Roger Strong now is a clear number one, but otherwise, it's super close. Aries' facial choices in recent years, I feel like, have left something to be desired. But again, just my personal preference. And right. Of course, a lot of this is a lot that shouldn't account for much. Also, a lot of it is you know wrestlers like they choose their looks, not always necessarily to be classically handsome. You know, they might look they want to look interesting for different reasons. So that also obviously has to be taken into account. I yeah. feel like if you just like took their like facial features and stuff, they're all on a very similar level look looks wise. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think you can go wrong with any of them. Mm-mm. But let's let's have a but, quadruple date. <laughs> but you know, uh, we we had to answer the. You know, we can't shy away from the important questions on this podcast, and I feel like that is something that had to be done. So yeah, I mean, after- uh, now let's see, let's hear your thought. Uh, hashtag um, Generation Sex. No, just kidding. Not Generation Sex. <laughs> do not do not use that hashtag in any way related to us. Um. um how about generation? Generation. Oh, snack. I got, I got it, I, I got it, I got it. You know, like the famous song, "The Blank Generation." Hashtag mm-hmm. the rank generation. 
that was a rejected title for your original podcast, List Them and Learn, which yes. you can still listen to on thecubsfan.com. Great podcast. Yes, thank you. It's it's an okay podcast. It's good when you're on it. Uh, hashtag no. the rank generation. I'm 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 sticking with that. Do it. Tell okay. us. We want to know. Don't make rank Austin. Em. Don't make Austin Aries mad at you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one scary thing is you might incur. Uh, I I could see him getting angry and. Oh well. He's incredibly uh, handsome, but he's you know he's used some in, he's used some uh, interesting uh, facial hair choices on purpose, cool choices. <laughs> but you know if we're gonna have to rank. None, so, listen, listen. Any, I'm gonna say this. I am very, no, I am very much not good looking. I am not judging, but oh, that is. But bullshit. but you guys are public figures, so I think you're leaving it open for us to rank. You're all beautiful men. I apologize sincerely if I have hurt any of your feelings. Again, like that's the other thing. They were all good looking. Like not that, that I, I don't. I don't think that Ring of Honor was appealing to many too much in the way of the women's demographic. Although, honestly, I do think Jack Evans probably brought a couple women to shows. Like, wasn't there that show where Jack, where a, a, that comes up in the future where a chair hits a girl in the crowd and the person Ring of Honor sent to, like, hang out with her and smooth it over was Jack Evans? I did not, rem- I did not remember that, but, hey, makes sense. Dude's smooth. Yeah, yeah so again, there, even if you're not a, a, a promotion that's drawing a lot of women, you know, having a couple handsome boys on your card, I guess, comes in handy for situations like, you know, that very common situation where a chair hits a woman in the crowd. But uh, Yeah, CM Punk, also a noted, a noted ladies' man. Yeah, although I feel like Punk probably appeals to a very specific woman like i don't like, know i don't know uh, if you think if you look go down the list of the wrestling women that he's dated it's a pretty diverse array of women mm, yeah like just what, don't get it when he <laughs> when he jumped when he got into wwe i bet you did not expect that he would start dating maria canellis right away that they did not seem no, they did not seem to be a stylistic match yeah, at the like, time like, at the not time just a looks thing but just like how do their personalities match? Well, that's what, well, that's what I meant. I think facially CM Punk is good looking. But no, he is. Yeah. But like, but then like, wasn't Maria right around that time talking about like five star matches on Twitter? It was like, oh God, like Punk must be making her watch his matches with Samoa Joe right now. Like, yeah. like all of a sudden, like just, yeah, you just, anyway, this is probably the longest digression we've ever had. So <laughs> after the Hydro and Alex Shelley match. Ne- ne- uh, next episode, next, next episode of List Them and Learn. The top ten handsomest wrestlers. <laughs> Honestly, I would love to uh, do that. Yeah, that, Al, Al, but Albert Ch- Albert Ching would be very mad if I did that episode and didn't include him. Uh, honestly, you guys should do that. that. Should be the one you come out of retirement for. <laughs> Make a Joe uh, Joe Gagne esque return <laughs> for the most important of topics. But yes. Anyway, after Hydro and. Uh, Shelly wrestle Evans laughs at Hydro and the crowd chants for Shelly who gets on the mic and says Hydro gave a good effort tonight but his best wasn't good enough Alex says Hydro opened his eyes tonight though and he thinks Hydro knows where he belongs he offers his hand out to him but Hydro ducks out of the ring which creates again this is one of those funny moments where he draws Hydro draws booze for rejecting the heel faction. Um, Shelly says tonight is Generation Nexus night, and no one is going to stop them. So that's the end of the segment. But again, that's another nice little thing I think Gabe did with the booking of this, which is I think some people like 
Vince Russo, for example, the temptation would be, we're doing this stable of young up-and-comers that's taking over. Let's have every single up-and-comer join the stable. And I like that Gabe was like, no, like I can push more young guys at once, and they don't all have to be in this stable. Like Hydro doesn't have to be a part of it. Yes, He'll uh, still get a push. You know, it just, we don't have to, you know, they can stand apart, which, again, I think is a very wise decision. Right. Now, the, the, fact, the fact that they made Generation Next a relatively small group while it was most relevant, I think, was very helpful to it yeah, um, being yeah. successful. It never got diluted. Right. Um, next up, we have Danny Daniels, Masada, and Trent Acid defeating the Carnage crew of DeVito, Justin Credible, and Loke in 634 when Acid pinned Loke after hitting a Yakuza kick. Now, you might wonder, before I throw it to you, Matt, if you're listening at home, you might wonder, hey, isn't Masada part of the Carnage crew? Well, the match starts with a very kind of weird resolution to an angle because at first we see all four Carnage crew members enter, and then we see Danny Daniels and Trent enter, and as we're watching their entrance, mid-entrance, the camera cuts to Loke to mid-taking a bump for Masada. We don't see what Masada did. We just see the aftermath, and we see DeVito getting mad at Masada. So yes, after all these shows, all these months of who shit in the Carnage crew's bags, the cameraman misses the turn. Gabe has to tell us during the match on commentary that it was Masada and Danny Daniels that crapped in the Carnage crew's bags and that Masada has betrayed the Carnage crew. So, But also, don't, yeah. they ha- don't they have a hard camera? Like, this is what I don't understand. Like, it wasn't just the camera person missing it. They clearly chose not to show it in editing. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened. Like, literally, we're seeing, like, when the camera cuts, we see the hard, not the hard cam, but, like, a handheld cam at ringside. We see, basically, Davi, I mean, Loke, take a, in the middle of taking a bump for Masada. And it, it's clear that Masada's attacked him, but we don't get to see it happen, you know? Here, here's another thing. This is, like, a, supposed to be a big angle. They built it up. There's a big turn. And they don't even have, like, a promo? Like, no one says anything? It's just, like, like it's all explained on commentary? Like, What? Yeah, you would expect a mic work where it's like, you know, both teams come out and then the crunch crew on the mic and they're like, well, who is it, Trent? Who did it? And then, you know, maybe Basad jumps them from behind. But instead, yeah, there's like no asking or anything. Like, like Masada's plan was just to attack them while the other entrance was happening. It was just such a weird thing. But then we get a match out of it. What did you think about this match? Another short match, obviously, because they've they've got longer matches coming up. But what do you think about this match? Well, the angle, I thought, overrides the match. So, like, the way it's... First of all, what was the match supposed to be? Like, did we ever get clear on that? Like, before I this turn? This was supposed to be the Carnage crew versus... Danny Trent. Daniels and Trent, but then which Carnage crew? Like, I don't know. Um, I guess they're just like, eh, well, we don't even need to think about that. But what happens is, Daniels... Um, so, at, so, Masada attacks Loke... And then DeVito just, he goes, he walks up to Masada, no mic, and he just goes, did you fucking shit in my bag? Like, and it's just like, first of all, first of all, even if he didn't, he just attacked Loke. Isn't that worse? Like, like literally beating someone up is worse than pooping somewhere? Like, so it's like, your reaction is just, wait, forget about the thing you did just now. Did you do that thing two months ago? Um, did you punch me my best friend in the face? I mean, you shit in our bag months ago. <laughs> yeah, and so, and I don't know if like Masada said yeah or anything like that, but they they, they have this match, um, and so 
Acid, he's wearing jorts and has a tangle, a towel hanging out of his back, his back pocket, so he fits right in in this match. And um, everyone is so shocked that they decide to have a traditional six-man tag team match <laughs> and get on the aprons and everything. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's your general reaction to a betrayal of epic proportions. And, uh, and Gabe notes, like, okay, well, he's very smart. He looks at Daniels and he looks at um, Masad and he's like, they're wearing that Jinx clothing that the Carnage crew usually wears. <laughs> <laughs> he has to bring that one up. I heard that clothing was very controversial, by the way. <laughs> I, I felt for Gabe because he basically had to do like the entire turn on commentary during the match. Like, but why would you feel for Gabe? He could have just explained, you know, just had the angle <laughs> done however okay. he wanted. And he was like, oh, I guess there's been too much mic work already. I don't know. But okay, I, I felt bad for Gabe, the commentator, who in my mind is a separate piece. You know, I felt Chris Lovey. Chris Lovey. Yeah. yeah. Not for Gabe Sapolsky. <laughs> yeah. Then, um, of course, but uh, he also has to explain. He's like, why is this show in a tent? Well, he's like, well, this is literally what he says. There's this war going on in Iraq I'm sure many of you are aware of. Now, for anyone young listening to this, um, saying there's this war in Iraq that many of you are aware of is like saying – you know, there's this guy, he's uh, Donald Trump, I think some of you might have heard of him. He's this thing called the President of the United States. I don't know, few of you might know about that whole thing. Like, that's that's basically what, in 2004, this was like the most talked about thing in the Western Hemisphere, was the Iraq War. And the way he says it, it's like, yeah, you know, um, you know, there's this, it's this weird thing happening. I don't know, I, I'm sure some of you have heard of it. Um, so this, sorry, go, go on. No, I was going to say, so the booking is very silly. But you can't say this is dull, right? Um, Loke has some interesting offense, um, but I think the match is pretty sloppy. Um, Masada, he no-sells the Saito suplex and takes down Loke. Then he breaks up a spike pile driver with a chair. He beats up DeVito's leg with a chair, uh, and then Acid hits a Yakuza kick for the win. So for some reason, Acid got the win in this match. Um, I don't know what's going on. So this match was not good, but this whole thing was not boring. I think this whole start to this show has been extremely unique. Yeah everything's kind of impromptu on the fly. But one thing that uh, I thought this match, again, another in terms of action, like you said, average, there was some interesting stuff, but also some sloppiness. But the thing, uh, DeVito hit his nice big fat guy drop kick, which he gets really good height on for a guy his size. I always appreciate that. Um, the, the one thing, though, that I felt was a bit weird watching this match, and I, and I think you kind of touched on it earlier, is that, you have this huge betrayal, and we've seen the Carnage crew have so many like hardcore matches, and they where they just brawl with guys who they hate because they're got weird gimmicks. That's the crime they've done. And here's a match where this months long storyline gets finished. There's this incredible betrayal, and most of the match has Loke and Devito just calmly standing on the apron, watching you know just incredible play face in peril, and. I realize that's probably just the way they want to work the match, and that's very generous of Justin Incredible as the veteran to be the guy who takes the beating for most of the match. But it was just a weird visual after seeing so many, you know, Carnage Crew brawls and fiery promos for them, as you said earlier, just to do a very orderly six-man tag where they're just like, yeah, well, well, you know, this guy just stabbed us in the back, but we'll just take our turn. We'll follow the rules. We'll wait for a tag. Like, that was a bit of a weird visual. This was like the one time they really paid attention to the rules. But yeah, other than that, a- average match at best. Um, and yeah, I never felt older watching this old Ring of Honor 
than hearing about the Iraq war. Like 15 years ago, that's something. So you might say, so so you're aware of it. (laughs) Definitely. It is surreal to hear, to think back that like 15 years ago, a a ring of honor show was diverted because a national guard army had to be like hold ammunition for a in progress war. Like just like, it makes me worry about what's going to be 15 years from now. Like, Will we be doing some other retro podcast? We'll be like, oh, remember when we talked about, you know, like 2019 AEW and everything was fine. And now, you know, we're every day. Our life is a war for water. And, you know, like, well, it's not like it's not not like it's not like everything is so great now. (laughs) No, it isn't. But it just it's weird to think that 15 years ago there was a war that was like preempting, like forcing indie wrestling shows into tents. It's just it's a weird time capsule that. Maybe isn't altogether pleasant to think about, but no, you're right. It's ev- everything is fucked. But my point is just yeah, th- <laughs> things are still fucked. That that yeah. was my bigger point. No, ag- agreed. Uh, um, through the years, colon everything is always fucked. Uh, and also we rank handsome people. But next, we're getting the start of a Jimmy Rave John Walters match, one that Gabe says is a must win for Rave. So this is another angle they were getting into around this time, which is the idea that Rave hasn't done really well in Ring of Honor win loss wise. And if he doesn't start winning, he's basically done. He, Gabe, in, in the commentary at this moment, he kind of had a bit of ambigu- amb- ambigu- uh, ambiguity. Ambiguity. Yes. Sorry. Had a brain lock there. But, um, being like, well, this could be the end for him. But later when they were talking about it, they made it sound like, no, if he had lost this match tonight, he would have been gone for good. But that doesn't come up because uh, right when the bell rings, Generation Next makes their way to the ring again. Alex Shelley grabs the mic again and he says, time out, flag on the play. Uh, Shelley says that Generation X wants both Walters and Rave spots. They're not going to climb the ladder. They're going to take the rungs out underneath them, which I thought was one of those lines that's pretty clever until then you kind of think about like you're, you're ruining a ladder. Like you're both not getting to the top. Then. Like you're bringing them down to your level instead of ascending higher, but it still sounds cool when you don't think about the meaning of it. Uh, the rest of Generation Next attack Walters and Ray from behind, and in kind of an awkward moment, Shelly has to stall way too long, like for his like, where the idea is the rest of Generation Next sneak attacks Walters and Ray while Shelly's talking on the mic, and it's clear that Shelly's like waiting and waiting for this moment he's expecting to come sooner. But anyway, they have the beat down. Walters gets taken out with a big pile driver, and he sells his neck. And then the generation next leaves the ring, and then we cut right next to the start of the next match. Matt, before we get into that, what do you think about uh, – any thoughts about this little angle? I think like as of this moment, it doesn't really say much except these are a good two guys to go after, you know, like yeah. in terms of representing the old guard of the ROH mid-card. Even though obviously this timeline is so short, you know, J- uh, John Walters has – been in ROH for a year at this point, but he's still the old guard because ROH has only been around for a little over two years. Uh, you know, if only Matt Stryker was there, but because he would probably be the most symbolic person to go after, right? Um, we'll get to him on another show, but no, that's actually a really great point, which I didn't think about, which is, yeah, that on this show, they're also doing another thing that's different than some of these invasion angles. They're not going after the top guys. They're going after mid-card guys with the idea is, like, we're getting spots tonight. Like, they're not trying to take over the company tonight. 
they're going after, you know, Jimmy Rave and Special K and the Ring Crew Express. They're going after just the lowest kind of to mid-tier guys. They're picking them off. Right. They want to control the ROH mid-card, which, you know, interesting goal. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but they succeed at it. So uh, we'll to be continued. So that leads us – we get finally a ring of uh, – one of the Generation Next branded matches, the one that did not get canceled. Nigel McGuinness defeated Jimmy Jacobs in 922 when he made him to sub- – made him submit to some armbar um, variation. I don't know what to call it. It's, it's around this time he was trying to adopt this as a finisher for Ring of Honor. Obviously, he would find things that would be much more popular that he would stick with, but he was using it at this time. Um, I thought this is, again, I'm saying a lot of matches are in the middle of the road. I, I bet you you'd probably like this a bit more. I mean, I thought this was solid, but not... You know, two and three quarter, maybe three, if I'm being real generous, but probably two and three quarter stars. Uh, I thought it was a little slow in the first half. There was a lot of Nigel working over Jimmy's arm with stuff like standing wrist locks. And uh, it was fine work, but the problem for me was it allowed me to focus on the commentary. And the commentary actually really irritated me for this match because it's something that they've been doing recently, but they really go into here, which is they completely shit all over Jimmy Jacobs and the Hus gimmick. They constantly compare him to Bruiser Brody. They they just and and it's it's shitty because the Hus gimmick consistently every show gets really over with the crowd almost immediately. And Jimmy Jacobs, even though he does comedy spots, and yes, there's comedy in the early minutes of this match where Nigel isn't taking him seriously and he pulls Jimmy's headband over his eyes but in every match jimmy wrestles in ring of honor he doesn't wrestle like a complete comedy thing by the end he's trading big near falls and doing serious moves and things like that so the idea that every every time he wrestles in this point of his career that the commentary is basically shitting on him half shitting on him and laughing at him and treating him like he's just the complete comedy when he's actually working as a serious like wrestler who's you know trading big moves with guys you're pushing. That's the thing. It kind of distracted me from the match. I feel like the rest, as the match goes on, it gets bigger and bigger. Um, we get to see maybe one of the first instances of Nigel doing the headstand fake out spot and the tower of London. The crowd like loves those spots immediately. Um, Jimmy Jacobs does a rope walk chop, which was kind of neat. Um, yeah. So I thought this was a, uh, fairly enjoyable match but nothing special i feel like these two could have a better match with each other and i just really didn't like the commentary i so i I, you're right that i liked it more than you did i think yeah of course they could have a better match with each other but i don't think their point was to have necessarily the best match this was a short mid-card match but i thought the energy was really good and i thought the psychology was solid i agree with you about the commentary i especially thought it seemed like nulty like I don't know. It seemed like he was offended by Jacobs' Brody shtick. Did did you get that vibe at all? Yeah, like like he he keeps like Mark go, at one point goes, "I know Bruiser Brody, and you, sir, are no Bruiser Brody." And it's like another timely like I I don't mean to pick on Mark Nolte because I overall he wasn't terrible on commentary compared to some of the people we've heard, but like. Such a dated reference. Well, he actually like, literally like, says, he literally says, like the great Senator Lloyd Benson once said. It's like, <laughs> could you imagine Lloyd Benson being mentioned 
on a wrestling show in 2004. Like, he, he might as well have just to start referencing like 80s Wendy's commercials. Like when I look at Jimmy Jacobs, one thing that comes to mind, Chris, is where's the beef? Get it? Like, well, like at least at least most people would probably know what he's talking about there. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, going to what you said uh, about, about Mark, he, there, there's a point where, uh, Gabe tries to give the history like he usually does on commentary where he's like, yeah. And recently Alex Shelley turned on Jimmy Jacobs and it's clearly supposed to be a thing where like, we're supposed to feel sympathy for Jacobs and Mark's reaction is basically like, well, can you blame him? And it's just like, Mark, that's not what you're supposed to be saying right now. I don't think like yeah. Gabe's leading you to think a different way. Although to be fair. Gabe shares a little bit of blame here because he's like he's clearly prompting Mark to rile him up about like at one point early on he's like Mark how does Jimmy Jacobs compare to Bruiser Brody and then like you're just setting Mark up and then Mark says something like uh, maybe he compares with a step ladder and body armor it's just like Ugh. yeah if if you're gonna be like making fun of guys for being short you should not be the ROH commentator because <laughs> it's not about how tall they are at all like, in ROH. Like, yeah, uh, and that's the thing. If you're going to go after Jimmy Jacobs, there, there's a lot of guys at his height or comparable heights. Yeah, right, exactly. A lot of guys. Um, as far as the match, um, I I agree with you. What stood out to me was that Nigel was kind of still rolling out a lot of his trademark offense, and the crowd loved it. And offense and defense, right? The headstand thing, like you said. Crowd loved that, and it was really cool. And the Tower of London and stuff. But I did like, you know, the way that they worked over Jimmy's arm and the way Jimmy was selling the arm. Nolte even at one point calls it useless. And then the the divorce court into that arm submission, I thought that was a good ending. So I thought they did a good job in the role that they were in. So I would put it in the three-star range, three and a quarter even. Like, that's, I think that's fair, and I think that's exactly what it needed to be. One thing I noticed, too, watching this match was in 2003 and even early 2004, we've seen a few, a bunch of examples of guys kind of they're getting pushed ahead of the crowd reaction. Guys like Mark, uh, Matt Stryker, you know, and even to a degree John Walters, where they're getting strong pushes and the crowd reaction to them isn't quite as strong often as the push. This was an example of I, I felt like Nigel was ahead of the push tonight. Like he's in a in a solid mid card match and clearly he's on his way up, but the crowd was really into him. I felt like even before he really like wowed them with some of the stuff like the Tower of London, it felt like like this crowd is ready to see Nigel do bigger things. Like they're you don't have to convince them like they're excited for Nigel. Yeah, I would agree with that. And even I was excited for Nigel. I felt like he was just really like seemed like a guy who was on the move. Yeah, and again, it's so much easier to push a guy when like the crowd's leading you and you're not leading the crowd, where you don't have to convince them. It, it just makes a world of difference. Um, backstage in an echoey stairwell, we have the S to the S to the P, Sugar Sean Price. He's interviewing Homicide and Julius Smokes. Smokes rambles on as Smokes does, and then Homicide asks Julius if he knows Sean. Sean, in a really weird, whiny fashion, is like, yeah, I know, I know Smokes. Like, he just kind of whines about it, like in a really defensive way that makes him look not befitting a, a interviewer and official ROH employee. Uh, Price then says Homicide has to be pumped up tonight, to which Homicide just flies off the handle and gets angry. He grabs Price. He pushes them against a wall, and Sean flees. I wrote in my notes, top-notch interviewer. And yeah, tonight is going to be a night where a lot of interviewers do getting not much in the way of results. Yeah, I'm the best. The mic, the most important stuff on the mic takes place when guys are not being interviewed but just talking on their own. Yeah. Uh, and that brings us to the Ring of Honor Tag Team title, no disqualification match. 
the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana successfully defend the titles, defeating the prophecy of BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff in 19 minutes, 19 seconds, when Punk pinned Whitmer after hitting the Pepsi plunge. So obviously this is a rematch of their match they had the very last show at Round Robin Challenge 3. I recall, while not thinking the match was amazing, liking that match, I think a bit more than you. What did you think about this? Since they got basically, I would say, probably, what, a little more than double the time here and a no DQ step. Um, Okay, so first of all, did they announce no DQ on the ring announcer or was it just on the commentary? The reason I ask this is because the first part of this match did not seem like it was a no DQ match to me. And even at certain points, you would see like CM Punk was choking uh, Moff on the ropes and the referee was counting. Um, so did the referee forget this was no DQ or did they retroactively say this was no DQ? Did you notice? Uh, I didn't notice. And the weird thing Ray Varner would do at some points on these shows, and I forget what they did for this, but I think they even, they did it for the main event tonight is they would have game one commentary say, this isn't no DQ, but it's relaxed rules because this grudge, we want a winner. And so they started really blurring the lines here where they want to act like they still had rules, but a lot of times they would just say stuff like that. Right, yeah. Um, I, I was confusing to me. As far as the match, um, I thought the early part, I was kind of thrown off because it was hard to tell who was supposed to be the faces and the heels at first. Like, the announcers were treating them both like heels. It was hard to tell who the crowd was behind. But then at a certain point, like, Moff got the crowd clapping for Whitmer. So I guess the prophecy were the faces. Um, you know, there was some cool stuff. Um, they were doing stuff where, like, Cabana was holding BJ on top of him, like, holding his arms, exposing his midsection, um, and then, like, Punk was able to at- attack him that way. I, I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, they were well, they were working on Whitmer's back for a while, and then, like, Punk went for this drop kick on Whitmer, and Whitmer moved, and Punk went through the ropes all the way to the floor, which was cool, and then Moff got in, kind of ran wild. Eventually... They uh, they did stereo topes, the prophecy did to the floor, and then they were fighting on the outside. They were in like the crowd, and you could see they were fought, they were fighting on grass and stuff because they were in the backyard. The downside of this was that at a certain point they cut away from something that you could see to a shot of complete darkness until the spotlight found the wrestlers. Did you notice this? That they literally cut to black at one point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was really black. And then occasionally the, the spotlight's glare, it would go from being complete darkness to, like, overwhelming glare. Yeah, well, wonderful production values on this show. Um, so it was hard to see the action too well, but you could tell they're throwing each other on lots of chairs. And then they get back in the ring, Punk goes for the Shining Wizard for two, and then Punk goes for something off the top, but Moff shoves him off the turnbuckle all the way to the guardrail on the floor, and the crowd really got into that and chanted, holy shit. At this point, the crowd is into it. Um, There's a superplex by Whitmer on Cabana, and then Punk and Moff simultaneously hit moves on their opponents. So, like, Punk comes off with a leg drop, and Moff comes off with a headbutt. So that was kind of cool. And at this point, the crowd's really into it. Um, Punk rolls down his knee pad, but Moff takes him out, and Punk goes for the Pepsi plunge. But Moff and Cabana, and, like, all four of them are fighting on the top. And then Cabana falls to the floor, and Moff falls through a ringside table, and then Punk hits the Pepsi plunge for the win. So I thought, like, the last half of the match, or maybe the last third even, was good. Like, the crowd was into it. I thought it was, like, pretty good even by this, like, if you want to compare it to that match from uh, 
round robin challenge. I thought it was kind of like that. I thought there was something kind of off about the first third of the match and the middle third. I don't know. You couldn't really see it. Um, so all in all, I would say decent. I thought it was decent and the guys worked really hard and the ending was entertaining. Yeah, I would describe this as like good, but not, but kind of disappointing still. Because again, for me, I liked what they did in the short amount of time they had at Round Robin Challenge 3. And here they had way more time and a no DQ stick to play with. And I felt like it wasn't really better. And you you went over some of the problems with the face heel stuff being confusing at first and the especially, yeah, the crowd stuff. And I realized that they were – the tent thing was they only had a few days' notice on. But then maybe don't do a crowd brawl spot you know, if you can't guarantee that you fans can see it. Because there's nothing worse watching indie wrestling than when guys decide to have an uh, extended crawl – um, crowd brawling section and you don't have like a good spotlight set up and you just can't see anything because yeah, I'm sure it's really fun for like the 60 people in that section of the building for everybody else that's watching it at home. And even in the building, it's, it's not fun. Um, I thought one problem with, with this match was that apart from the extended crowd brawl and some, a couple swings of some chairs, there wasn't that much in this match. There wasn't really anything in this match that you wouldn't see in a regular Ring of Honor match. Like, especially most of the match, a lot of it, was, or a good chunk of it, was Punk and Cabana doing the old school, like, isolate somebody, beat down, c- control the match. It wasn't, I don't know, it didn't quite fit my expectations for a no DQ match. And in fact, I would say that the, in some ways, like, the relaxed rules main event we're getting later tonight is more violent than this no DQ match. Oh yeah, much. I mean, yeah, fork yeah. fork stabbing. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So so it's one of those things where yeah, uh, it's. I think it, they said the step sets the bar kind of higher than they than they hit in terms of things like that. Also, uh, Dan Moff takes a bump through the table right to right off the turnbuckle to set up the finish of the match where Punk does the Pepsi plunge, and the problem is the camera angle you barely see him go through the table. It's like from the opposite end of the ring. And yeah, I wouldn't, have, no, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known unless the announcers had said so. <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's a, much like the Carnage Crew angle. It's another thing where one of these big highlight things you really should see, you really don't get to see. You, you barely are. You have a faint awareness of it. And um, But yeah, the match itself, it was, it was not... It was. It, I feel like I'm being sounding too down. It was not a bad match, and there, those two punk spots you described, especially the the where he tries to do the corner drop kick and flies through the ropes at speed, feet first through the ropes to the floor. That was a crazy punk bump, and he also takes that bump off the top that you said to the guardrail. And between those two spots and the spot on the last show where he where he has to take the bump from the ring over the top rope to the floor without touching the floor of the apron. Punk was taking some pretty crazy bumps at this point in his career. Like, you know, he's, he's not Cactus Jack, but some pretty crazy bumps. And it's, it's, it's an interesting couple shows to see him do that. And yeah, it just, it's, it's solid. It's, it's, I, I don't, I feel like I'm being too hard on it yet. If you also ask me, hey, do you want to go back and watch this match again? I would say no. So maybe I'm not being hard on it. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I really do think the ending sequence was good. And I thought the yeah, crowd really was. was came alive for it. And I think that brings the match up a lot compared to where, maybe how it was going before that. 
So after the match, we join Gary Michael Capetta backstage. He's not in a stairwell. He he's not Sugar Sean Price. He gets the the good interviews where you don't have to be stuck in a stairwell. And well, it's, it's funny. So ba- so it's funny because like backstage in this case is like inside the building that the fans are not allowed in, which I think is <laughs> is an interesting dynamic here. Backstage just means inside. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the weird. Yeah, you're right. Huh. Okay, that's weird. Um, so Gary's joined by a bummed out Special K. It's a very short segment. They're sad. They ke- they're sad that they keep losing. Dixie says party's over. So yeah, Special K. It looks like a change for them, and they would get a change, but really they're kind of you know their heyday is done now. They're kind of lost at sea here. Um, yes, that is next- true. The, the golden age of Special K is absolutely over. Spoiler alert: it does not come back in any way, shape, or form close to what it was before. Yeah. Uh, next, we join Sean Price outside the Prophecies locker room. He tries to enter it to find a scoop about what's going on with them, but Allison Danger yells at him and doesn't even let him get in through the door. And I wrote in my notes, the crack ring of honor reporting team continues their night of top-notch investigative journalism. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, the Ring of Honor is a serious promotion. They never make their announcers seem very competent. At any yeah, point like, during this era. Something we probably should have counted at the start would be the number of times Ring of Honor um, interviewers try to get someone to answer any of their questions and the segment ends with them getting no answers or kicked out of a room. Like, it's got to <laughs> be double digits at this point. I would say so, yes. Um, which, you know, that can happen some of the time, but it seems like here it happens more often than not, by far. Like, it is, it's a wonderful treat when they do get an answer. But uh, next up was the Briscoes, Jay and Mark Briscoe, defeating the outcast killers of Diablo Santiago and Oman Tortuga. They're scored to the ring by Josh Daniels and Prince Nana, part of the embassy. It ends in 441. We get a graphic for this match that says that there is no commentary due to technical difficulties. I don't know what the typical technical difficulties yeah, were. Yeah, seriously, what the fuck? Like, how is that a thing? The, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't. So when the commentary is in done in post production, I, I I don't know what happened. They clearly and it worked for and it worked for and it worked for every other match. I wonder if they were literally just like, you know what? Uh, we can't be bothered. <laughs> like, uh, I don't it, care. It could be. Well, do you remember that something similar happened um, at the crowning a champion show where um, the opening match with uh, Tony Mamaluke against somebody and that match had no, um, or maybe it was Michael. Sh- I don't even remember, but the opening match had no commentary either, just randomly. And they never, and the announcers never acknowledge it. So it's like, yeah, it was something that happened in post. I don't know. So weird. <laughs> Maybe it's literally as easy as, like, they forgot to press record or something, and then they were like, you know what, it's not worth it. Mark, 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 Mark Nolte already flew home. We can't, we can't do it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this match, there's not much to say. The, the Outcast Killers got a fair bit of, I would probably say they got, like, a quarter of the offense here. This still felt like a squash, though, because the Briscoes were just hitting big bombs when they were taking out the Outcast Killers. I felt this was a match that kind of, showed you why the outcast killers are where they were in the totem pole of indie wrestling because they did try some innovative little moves but i felt like there was just some sloppiness here and they were working obviously one of the better tag teams on the scene at this point there was a slight bit of 
communication issues between one of the killers and Mark Briscoe at one point where it seemed like they didn't know what to do and they just kind of stood awkwardly and then redid what they were planning on doing. Um, I will say Diablo Santiago took one of the nastier looking Falcon arrows I've ever seen. Usually when someone takes the Falcon arrow, they take it like, you know, like a high angle slam where on this one, Diablo basically took like a vertical drop almost straight down and just kind of turned it on his side at the last second. So if he had, you know, taken that a bit higher and didn't turn, that could have been really ugly. It looked pretty nasty, but yeah, there's not much to this match. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything else to say about it? I guess the one thing is, like, it does seem like the Outcast Killers were acting a little bit bolder now that Nana was in their corner. Like, this, the way they started the match was Tortuga kept psyching Jay out of, like, a, a, a test of strength. And then, um, and then slapped him. Which I was definitely, like, something that maybe the previous Outcast Killers wouldn't have done. So I think, like, that's really it. And like you said, they try to do some interesting moves, but the moves are so indie. Like, like a double-team hip toss, they flip them all the way around onto their stomach. You know? I bet, but, uh, you know, it wasn't bad. I guess, you know, that was kind of cool. But otherwise, yeah, it's basically what you said. As far as squash matches go, I thought this was not bad at all. And one, one other thing I want to mention, I just realized, I forgot, this is related to the last match, the no DQ tag title match. This is just a live note from Mike Johnson. I might as well throw it in there. He wrote about that match. The actual brawl was really stiff and brutal with the workers taking bumps and swinging chairs Memphis style, but nearly caused a scene with fans who were being told to back up by security so that a spotlight could be used to showcase the wrestlers. Unfortunately, the problem with putting that theory into reality was there wasn't anywhere for those fans to go since they were already trapped between the brawling workers, other fans rushing towards the brawl, and the stake lines that were holding the tent up. Although no one ended up hurt, the fans were rightfully upset as the prime concern seemed to be getting the spotlight on the workers, which should never be the case in that situation. Although nothing happened, in the future, Ring of Honor Security, which does a good job, would be well advised to use the old ECW mentality of having staffers surround the workers while in the crowd in order to prevent sight issues and for the security of all involved. Also, Matt, Mike Johnson said this was his favorite match of the night. Well, hey, ma- yeah, I mean, maybe live, the you know, there, yeah. there's something about crowd brawling if you're right there, I guess. But if you literally can't see it because of all these logistical issues that you just described, might make it a little bit worse on uh, on video. Yeah, if you're one of the people in that section and you're not being crushed or killed or something, like, yeah, it might, I can imagine it being the most exciting part of the match, but... I could put a few, I would put a, probably at least a couple matches I'd enjoyed more that we're about to get to. So, but first, after the match, Prince Nana berated the, berates the outcast killers on the way to the back. <clears throat> the Briscoe start to leave as, as well, but then Generation Next comes out again. Alex By the way, I, I forgot, I forgot one thing during the um, Jacobs versus McGinnis match, right at the Masters about to start, a crowd, a, a fan yells out, and here comes Alex Shelley. But of course, he wasn't coming out. But just by that point <laughs> in the night, they were just they were just they had, had the prediction of like what was going to happen. So I thought that was pretty funny. I got to remember there's a, there's a great other little crowd talk moment that I got to get to in like after the next match that is a really good moment, um, at least to me. So anyway, Generation Next comes out. Alex Shelley's on the mic. Here comes Alex Shelley, and uh, he says they've already taken two spots tonight, and they're looking to take two more, and that the Briscoes can either give them over and or have them taken from them. I thought that was kind of a weird thing because it's like the 
the Briscoes just wrestled their match. So like, how do they give them their spots? Like, do they have like a spot card in their pocket or something? Like, what do you want them to do at this point? Um, Jay Briscoe grabs the mic. He asks who the fuck these four even are. Jay says he and his brother never back down from a fight. Uh, Shelly points out that they're outnumbered four to two when Walters and Jimmy Rafer turn to a surprisingly big pop. I felt like that, you know, this actually that pre that pre earlier in the show angle worked out because the crowd was really excited to see them back. Uh, Walters gets on the mic and he says they all came to fight. He asked the crowd who wants to see an eight man tag. We get another big pop. We get some actual rounds of handshakes and the matches on. Generation Next of Alex Shelley, Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong defeated Jimmy Rave, John Walters, and the Briscoes in 41 minutes, 21 seconds, when Shelley made Walters submit to the Border City stretch. So, yeah, this is kind of the match that this show is remembered for. This is the, you know, the big showcase match. They get over 40 minutes. Matt, what do you think about this match? Um, I think we have a lot to say about this one. I'm just going to say... You and I, I think we have an agreement on something. We talked about a little about this before. So what what are you going to say about this match? Okay. Well, first of all, Gabe at one point says, this is the first match like this in ROH history. Does he mean a eight-man tag um, or like maybe a non-scramble rules eight-man tag? Um, clearly at the first anniversary show, they had like, what was that, a 20-man tag? I don't know, even remember how many people were in that match. 10-man, um, 12-man, uh, I don't even remember. Um, where there were seven guys on each team. Anyway, point is, this is a traditional eight-man tag, which it is true, you do not see much of an ROH. And um, they kind of have pairings early. Like um, the Grave against Evans is, is one pairing. And let me see if I wrote down some of the different... Uh, oh, yeah, Walters and Aries get like a segment... Um, Strong, he's with he's with Jay a lot of the time. Whenever Strong and Jay Briscoe are in the ring together, they just beat the crap out of each other. And I feel like their segments are kind of the highlights. And uh, mm-hmm. and and Shelley and Mark also have some uh, some segments together. Of course, they mix and match a lot too. But they uh, they those those pairings are a lot of the early part of the match. Um, I thought Nolte does a good job early because he breaks down how the Briscoes had a tough match against the Killers. You know, compared to how they might have expected, but then two tough matches the prior week. You know, it's good to remind the you know the DVD viewer that round robin challenge was only one week before this. I think that adds something. Um, I mean, obviously, what you're looking for with a match like this is how the the new group is doing together. And I feel like they didn't necessarily come on strong in terms of like working as a unit. You don't really see a lot of like double team or triple team or quadruple team stuff until a little bit later, um, even to the point where the announcers um, point that out. Um, so the, there's again, this is a 40 minute match. So there's a whole feeling out sequence that feel that feels like it lasts 20 minutes. It's fairly entertaining, but in terms of like the story of the match coming through, you don't really get you really don't get it too much early. Like I said, the highlights for me in the early part were Strong and uh, Jay Briscoe beating each other up. I thought that was cool. Eventually, you get some big moves, like Mark giving a big clothesline to Jack Evans, who does another flip bump. So many flip bumps. Um, And Walters throws Jack from an electric chair position onto the Briscoe's knees, which, you know, is a very Jack Evans bump to take. And I I thought that was one of the highlights, honestly. Um, A lot of spitting in faces, 
One thing I noticed, Jay spits his gum in Shelly's face. I believe at one point Roderick spits in the faces of the faces. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the faces, they, they, they work over Jack Evans. They kind of brutalize him. Um, the Briscoes do their double team sidewalk slam leg drop on him. And Gabe calls it <laughs> – I, I don't know why I thought this was so funny. So they've done this before. It's like uh, Jay hits a sidewalk slam. Mark hits a leg drop at the same time. And, J- and Gabe goes, nice leg. I, don't <laughs> I just thought that was a funny way to call the move. But now I like to think that's actually the name of that move. That's the nice leg. Um, but Evans does like a low blow followed by a Pele kick. And he gets, he gets out and Roderick tags in. Roderick takes over on, uh, on Jay and he works over Jay's legs. So at a certain point, I thought Jay's legs was going to be the target. Shelly works on the legs. Um, and they kind of cut off the ring on Jay, but it doesn't last as long as I would thought. But he does uh, – Jay does do a good job because he sells an Irish whip. Like he actually collapses on an Irish whip, which is good selling of the leg, which is why I don't understand why they just went right to tagging in Rave. So Rave gets in. He's a house of fire. He fights them all off, and then he tags in Walters. And Walters ends up being the guy that they actually work over. They, uh, they work on Walters' neck and back. Um, so Strong does like a Moodle lock, but he doesn't even try to bridge. He just like lies down on Walter's back. I don't know if I've ever seen that done before. Um, Evans even does a neck submission on Walter's, which um, I don't know. During this era, how many matches have do you remember seeing where Evans does submission moves? Yeah, yeah. It just felt like everyone had to do it. So Jack Evans is like, here's one of the three submissions I remember. Like, yeah, I'll grab on this. But Walters gets a hot tag on Mark, and at this point, we're in like the 30-minute mark. I feel like the crowd is tired because Mark's tag does not get the pop that Rave's tag did about 10 minutes earlier. Um, so they do the springboard doomsday device on Ares. Shelly gets a striker lock on Jay, so he's calling out his, uh, his arch nemesis, Matt Stryker. Um, Rave cuts him off and gets the cross face on Shelly, and Shelly almost taps but makes the ropes. Shelly hits a big running knee uh, oh, excuse me. A uh, rave hits the big running knee on Shelley, and Strong runs in. And even Gabe mentions at this point the crowd has just given up on caring about the tag rules because I don't even remember who's legal at this point. But um, but Walters does the Northern Lights on Aries. Evans breaks up the pin with a shooting star press, which is an interesting way to break up a pin. Um, Strong does a back suplex on Rave. Mark breaks it up that pin with a shooting star press. So there's another time someone does done that. Um, and so bodies are just lying everywhere. Jack hits a high angle back suplex on Mark and Mark comes right back with the cutthroat driver and Jay gets the Dre, the Jay driller on strong, but Aries immediately hits a 450 on Jay. Walters makes the save. And now the crowd's waking back up because they're doing all these moves. And then Walters hits a really scary botched dominator off the middle rope on Aries. Do you remember this? Yeah. There's a couple times I've seen John Walters get that dominator where it's like he doesn't always seem quite comfortable with it, which is maybe he shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, he almost drops Aries on his head. And yeah. um, and he doesn't, luckily. And Evans breaks up the pin. But Walters is still selling his neck. And Evans does a springboard 450 onto a pile, which leaves Shelley alone with Walters and Shelly does a double boot to the back of Walters neck and gets the border city stretch. And, uh, Aries cuts rave off with the rings of Saturn and Walters taps out. 
And so this match gets this insanely huge reaction. ROH chance, match of the year chance, everyone's going crazy. And when I first saw this match, I remember having a very similar reaction. Watching it now, they worked their butts off. They did so much cool stuff. It was a very good match. But I don't think it held together that well. I felt like there were some meandering points. The crowd was up and down because it went on a little too long. I thought with Walter's neck being such a focal point of the finish, they should have worked on it for longer. Um, instead, they had that whole segment where they were working on Jay's leg. I feel like the focus was just off at different points. I don't want to take anything away from the guys. You know, It's very hard to pull off a 40-minute eight-man tag like that where everything comes together. But that said, that's what they were trying to do. And they clearly succeeded at the time. I feel like it's one of the few matches we've watched where I can really strongly say I was a little disappointed in terms of what I expected, even though it was really good. And I don't quite think it holds up. Um, That's fine. It's been 15 years, so not everything's going to hold up. But this match, I don't think quite does. Yeah, um, I remember writing to you on Messenger. After I watched this match, like, Something I've said on this podcast a bunch of times is that one thing I've learned from doing this rewatch for through the years is basically every great Ring of Honor match from 15 years ago has held up, in my opinion. It's as good or better than it was. Now, stuff on the undercard, maybe, you know, that's the stuff that ages worse. But basically every match that is great, I rem- I've, I've been not disappointed by revisiting it. This is the first match, just like you said, where... I remembered it being great when I watched it at the time when it came out and I was excited and it's, it doesn't age. It, it, it's not, it's not bad. I, I would say it's like, I remember this as like a four and a half star match. You know, it would, uh, now I'd probably give it like three and a half. So that, that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but it, that's the difference between remembering something is, Oh, that was, was a great, great, you know, one of the memorable matches of the year to just like, Oh, this falls in a sea of things that were good, but kind of flawed. And yeah, you, you ran, ran down a lot of the problems, which is, I feel like the first 10 minutes of this match, you could have chopped right off. It was just everyone working the mat and I like mat wrestling, but it was just everyone trading off. It, it wasn't telling a story. There was, they weren't really working over one guy in a way that paid off later in the match. In fact, it felt like they didn't realize until the final 10 minutes that they should work over Walter's neck, even though they had done that whole angle earlier in the show where they pile drove him and he was really selling his neck. It was like in the final 10 minutes, they realized, Oh yeah, we should work over John's neck. And it, it, it just felt the first 10 minutes felt like they were artificially lengthening the match. Like they knew that they had 40 minutes and this was a way to turn a 30 minute match into a 40 minute match or even a 25 minute match into a 40 minute match. I also felt like it had one of those problems where there was a few times in this match where like Jack Evans would do a dive or some big spot would happen and you feel like, all right, this match is going to go from second gear to third gear and it just goes right back to second gear again. Like I feel like matches, I know so Mojo, I've referenced this before in shoot interview, in a shoot interview, he said his philosophy is a match should never go down. It should always go stay at its level it's at or go up. I don't think that's always – I don't always agree with that. I think there are some exceptions to that. But I did feel like this was a match where it was like just – there was a couple of times where just where you think it's going to really kick off, they kind of throttled it back down again. And that goes to what you were saying, which is it felt 
there wasn't a lot of teamwork. You know, it felt like a lot of guys doing their own thing, each like your turn to show off what you can do, your turn to show off what you can do. There wasn't a lot of cohesion. But at the same time, these guys worked their ass off. Like you said, there was a lot of good moves. And again, it was three and a half stars is a good match. But it just is not what my memory of this match was. I did not remember it being so kind of slow and not really holding together. But it's still, here's the thing, a match can be not what you remember and still be a huge match for those guys at the time because that crowd, like you said, went nuts for it. They they chanted as as much after this match as they chanted after friggin' Low Key and Brian Danielson in, in the early years of Ring of Honor. And yeah, it, it was the breakout match. I think that speaks to maybe, you know, sometimes the standards change over time, but also how hungry people were in Ring of Honor for new talent and for this talent to break out. And I think in a different city, you wouldn't have gotten as good of a reaction. I think in a Dayton, maybe not. But I think in Philly, they were hungry for change, and they got it here. And I felt kind of bad that this match aged a little bit for us because I know um, John Filipavich, who's a, a regular listener, and he's done a great ECW documentary, Barbed Wire City, among other things. He wrote us a nice email where he talked about some of his background with the show. And one thing he wrote, I'll just read it here, was, I do want to submit that the entire formation of Generation Next, the special K match, the match with Lethal, and the setup for the eight-man tag was amazing stuff. The eight-man tag between Gen Next and Rave Walters and the Briscoes is one of the biggest hidden gems pre-2006 Golden Year, and I'd argue a top 10 match for the promotion if you limit it to tags of any type during the Gabe run. That's 41 minutes of bliss, both live in 2008 when I rewatched it and the last time I saw it during the summer of 2014. 10-year um, reunion. Can't wait to see if you guys can still dig it or think it's aging poorly. And... I really wish we had we 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 had a better answer, but I do think we it's it's not ter it, it's aged a little bit I, I think and yeah I mean I think I like it probably a little more than you but I definitely don't hold it in that rarefied air it's just as far as pure match quality as as in terms of how successful it was and did it get the job done and is it historic and important and all that stuff I think it is in rarefied air it's one of the most important matches in ROH history you know kind of low key. Uh, no pun intended, but um, but just in terms of if I'm just like judging it in a vacuum as a wrestling match, yeah, it's not at the level of some of the best ROH matches. I'm sorry to say. And, and it's funny, I I decided I was really going to go back on this one and look after I had written my review notes to see what other people thought about it at the time, and there was actually more um a more diverse opinion at the time than I remember. There were people that definitely were like, this is a match of the year contender. This is an amazing match. And there was people that were like more like what we were saying now. So then that, that's the other thing. I kind of remember this being universally loved, but actually there was definitely people back then who kind of feel the way we felt now. So, right. It's not like, I'm trying to think of like a comparison. Like it's not like the night the line was crossed, like where it's like, Shane Douglas and Sabu and Terry Funk were at the time people were like this is you know one of the most amazing matches in American wrestling history you know things are just like you know it's you know it was new and old all combined perfect you know all and then you watch it now and you're like uh 
this is I mean right I mean do you know what I'm talking yeah. about you've seen that match right like yeah it, it doesn't Regal, see it doesn't even seem like a good match now really like if you're just judging it through modern eyes this is not like that this was still yeah, really good when you watch this match you can see in the final 10 minutes you can see why people were going nuts and thought this was an amazing match I think if you rewatch like yeah the night the line is crossed it takes more of you have to put yourself even further back you have to do more mental work to go well for the time it was you know it's harder to kind of see what people saw in it right um so looking at these old opinions there was just one that I thought was interesting where like I told you um there were people that really liked it, loved it back then, and there were people that kind of were more mixed on. I felt this was interesting where Wade Keller kind of goes both directions simultaneously. This was his review of the match. The opening 15 minutes were a bit tedious and mostly without long-term consequence, but it picked up from there and finished with a really hot 20 minutes of adrenaline rush action with big spots and innovative submissions. And then he gives it a rating four and a half stars so uh, that was a bit interesting to me where it's like if you think the first 15 minutes of a 40 minute match is tedious part of me wonders like can that match? i mean obviously it can be whatever you want it to be but a four and a half star match is pretty damn high praise for a match where you go almost half of this match was tedious and didn't really go anywhere especially back then where we thought the highest rating was five stars yeah, exactly. Nowadays, four and a half, right in line with what get, what Wade wrote. But in, yeah, in that day, you were half a star away from perfection. And he's like, eh, first 15, that's not so good. Still, great match. But still, big, like you said, you can't understate this was a, this was the selling point of the show on DVD, I remember. No, it wasn't Homicide Joe. And it was a big, big, it was the breakout match and a great showcase for, uh, the four guys in this stable. So, uh, just scrolling down. A rousing success, whatever we think of it now. Um, I thought also, I just gotta say, I thought Jack Evans was fantastic as the shit stirrer. He is just talking a mile a minute on the apron, just talking shit to the ref, to the opponents at all times. He is just the best annoying prick here. And I don't know where it happened. Maybe that electric chair spot you mentioned earlier, but Jack Evans' back is marked up to shit after this match. Like just red marks, deep gout, cut, not not full cuts, but scrapes. Um so yeah, after the match, crowd chants ROH, then match of the year, then give them a standing ovation, followed by a thank you chant. So this was one of the one of the bigger reactions for a match Ring of Honor crowds had given at up to this point. Jack Evans turns to the camera and says, "At least they st- at least they respect it." So he's being a heel, but he's kind of giving them props. Uh, both teams shake hands as another loud ROH chant starts. And then it came time for a scheduled in-ring verbal confrontation between CM Punk and Ricky Steamboat. They couldn't have a match. They're having a verbal confrontation. Gary Michael Capetta introduces both men one at a time, and they each get traditional pro wrestling entrances with the lights being dimmed and their theme music being played. Matt, this is where the fan interaction part that I like, the line I like to happen, because one of my favorite things in indie wrestling is when the commentary end. I mean, the uh, theme music ends, and then before the theme music for the next wrestler starts, there's complete silence, and then you hear someone very clearly say something. So in this, in this not match, but verbal confrontation, after Punk's music plays, there's a small break, and you can clearly hear one girl in the crowd, very clear as day, say, 
no, I like it. I like this song. And then it just goes on. And I like that you just catch that little bit of a conversation <laughs> where someone's like going like defending CM Punk's AFI song in the and, uh, well, I like it too. If he ever comes back, I want to hear that be his entrance music. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great theme for him. Great theme. I mean, it's one of those themes where you kind of it, it needs to play out a bit. So maybe not great for some of today's you know TV wrestling product, but it works great for him here. Uh, one crazy fan gets into an intense shouting match with Punk at ringside. I believe he is the bald screaming fan we've referenced in the past. He tells Punk he thinks he's Steamboat's bitch, and Punk continually just tells him to be a man, almost daring him to attack him. Never happens. He was the same um, guy, the same fan who was like, die, die, yeah. die, at main event spectacles. Yeah. Their feud continues, as does the Steamboat feud. Um, both men, When Steamboat and Punk are both in the ring, Capetta reminds them that this is going to be a verbal confrontation, not a physical one. The crowd chants, fuck him up, Steamboat, fuck him up. Punk gets the mic and he talks about how everyone wants to be remembered long after they're gone for their accolades and achievements. Punk runs down Steamboat's career accolades, including his titles, his WrestleMania three match with Savage, his series of matches with Ric Flair, his matches with Steve Austin in the in the mid nineties, which didn't get as good of a reaction as the Savage and the Flair ones. I feel like that should have gone first and not last. Um, you can tell this is a 2004 show, Matt, because this immediately mentioning Austin prompts a bunch of what chants from the crowd. So that was a bit of a mistake from Punk. Uh, Punk says Steamboat has aged well. He couldn't tell that he was 115 years old when he saw him in New Jersey earlier this year. He then brings up Steamboat's bald spot, and Ricky kind of runs his hand over it when Punk says that, which made me go, ah, like he's like, oh, my bald spot. Um Steampunk gets on the mic and he calls Punk just CM. He's like, well, CM, which I, I thought was funny. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, he's been doing that. I think it's yeah, – uh, he's the only one who does that. Oh, Actually, I think it's possible that Nolte has done that at certain points too. But it's 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 uh, an old – it's a man above 50. They call him CM. <laughs> um, well, Chick Magnet, uh, Ricky says – it took him over 20 years to build all those special moments. And on these Ring of Honor shows recently, Punk has been trying to capture that 20 years of history in one night. Ricky says that he's come to tell Punk to either shut up or put it up because he's come to fight him tonight. That gets a huge pop from the crowd. Uh, Punk takes off his jacket and the crowd breaks out into another huge fuck em up steamboat chant. Punk then grabs the mic as the crowd switches up to a CM pussy chant. Punk says he, he could take everything Steamboat built in his 20-year career in a snap. He says he respects Steamboat, and the last thing he wants to do tonight is fight him. The crowd chants pussy, but then Punk offers Steamboat a handshake. Uh, at this point, Punk does – I mean, Steamboat does a really great job of playing to the crowd and really milking the moment. He, Punk crosses his heart as he offers the hand. Steamboat eventually shakes. Punk immediately attacks him. Steamboat fires back with chops. Punk beats down Steamboat, and we get a, some vintage Steamboat selling, which like, might someone might say overselling, but that's classic Steamboat. We'll maybe refer, we can talk about that a little bit in a bit. I got a note on that. Um, Steamboat even takes a damn back rake from Punk. So Punk must have just loved being able to do like these classic like 80s spots, like a back rake. Uh, Punk's offense, he's all it's all easy to take stuff for Steamboat. He does chops, he does punches. Uh, Steamboat does another classic Ricky th old school thing where he'll make these little mini comebacks during the beatdown, but he always gives Punk control right back. Like he'll throw a chop or two, but then he'll immediately just keep getting be beaten down. He never makes the full comeback till near the end. 
Um, Steamboat whips Punk into the ropes and then grabs him by the throat with both hands. He lifts him off his feet. He holds him for a good long time there before he throws him down to the mat. So he still had some strength. Uh, Steamboat then climbs to the top rope and then Colt Cabana runs in. He crotches Ricky on the top rope. Uh, Colt then holds Steamboat down on the mat as Punk grabs the ring belt from ringside and he recreates the uh, classic Randy Savage angle where he comes down on Ricky's throat from the top rope with it. Refs rush in the ring to check on Ricky as Punk yells at Ricky that he took everything away from him just like that, like he said he would, like he said he could. Whitmer and Moff eventually run in, which chases Punk and Cabana out to ringside, and Punk celebrates and tells the cameraman that history repeats itself. So, uh, in a way, this is just more of what we've been seeing with another little bit of escalation. But I thought this still was very entertaining, and I thought it came off really well. And again, it's Steamboat keeps doing more and more and more in these angles what what did you think yeah i would describe it as simple but very effective right it was just it was very straightforward right the the the, they didn't try to do anything fancy on the mic they basically just told the story they didn't really try to do anything fancy in the ring they basically just told the story you know it was a very it was basically a simple wrestling match and steamboat did a great job like you said punk did his did a great job everything was perfect there wasn't anything like nothing that you like need to go out of your way to see or anything, but everything was done exactly the way it needed to. And it came across exactly the way it needed to, to continue to build this feud and get this issue and these characters over. So I thought it was incredibly effective. Great booking. And and the crowd ate it up. And and it's impressive also that this steamboat angle has been been getting honest to goodness, heel heat for CM Punk. And at a time where we're even on the same show with generation next, like it's really hard in the Indies, even by 2004 to get fans to boo someone if they're being really cool or if they're really talented and, you know, punks getting, you know, that crowd was like 80, 20 or 90, 10 against him wanting steamboat to kick his ass. So that's impressive in itself. And I'll give – there's one note I have from The Observer. Someone gave a live feedback to Dave, and I kind of disagree with this, Matt. I, I want to hear what you have to say. I'll read it. Dave wrote, I got several comments from readers who saw the angle – he's referring to the Punk Steamboat one – saying that this was the first time that they needed to limit Steamboat's interaction because in the spots where he was selling, it was clear that he's no longer Steamboat as opposed to previously where he just did a couple of quick trademark moves as a tease and people went crazy. I was told a singles match wouldn't be a good idea and the best they should try for if they go to a match is a tag where Steamboat just comes in for trademark spots. Matt – I didn't think Steamboat looked any worse here than he looked at any other segment in Ring of Honor thus far. I I, I thought he looked good. No, I, I yeah, this is coming from. Yeah, no, this is not. This is just wrong. <laughs> I think that whoever said this, uh, I don't know who it was, but whoever said it is uh, mistaken. That, that, I mean, honestly, like everyone has their own opinion, but this is wrong. If you're saying that Steamboat looked any different than he did in other segments, no, he didn't. You know, go watch it yourself. You'll see. This is the thing, this is the only explanation I can come for this comment, which is Steamboat, the one thing Steamboat was doing here, which I haven't really seen much of on the other Ring of Honor shows, was he was doing this classic Ricky Steamboat, love it or leave it, like really big facial expressions. Like Steamboat can sell really over the top facially and you either like it or you don't like it. Uh, Sometimes for me it crosses the line, but like. I've seen matches from 1992, like like feuding with the Dangerous Alliance, great era Ricky Steamboat, where he did facial expressions just this big. But the only thing I can think of is if you're a fan that didn't really watch Steamboat at the time and you're seeing that now, 
you might go, oh, this old man doesn't know what selling is. He's hokey or whatever. But this is, this is to quote Michael Cole, vintage Steamboat, Matt. Like that's, it, it, it's nothing different than you would have seen back at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that that's what they were referring to, but I guess it's possible. Well, I, I, I agree. It's probably a stretch, but I can't come up with another reason why you would think, oh, this is the match would prove Steamboat doesn't have it anymore, especially when we know years after this, he would have a legit good match with Chris Jericho. So yeah. the idea that somehow this segment proved that, like, oh, he's broken. No, by no, no means. No. no, definitely not. Um, and that brings us to the main event. That would be the Ring of Honor World Title match in what is at least on cagematch.com, they gave the stip as relaxed rules. There must be a winner. Samoa Joe defended the title against homicide via, and he won via pinfall in 20 minutes, four seconds after he hit a brain buster. So for this match, I felt like, um, this might be my favorite match on the show or right there with the gen next match. Now with my new hindsight evaluation of that match, it was, it is not, it, it it is not the do or die match. Like nothing. They, I, I think it's impossible for homicide and Samoa Joe to have a bad match against each other, but they have not hit the do or die match. And I don't know if they, uh, that, that height in my mind, and I don't know if they ever will again after, after that match. But I thought this was really good. I thought they did, you know, the relaxed rules, let them take the match in kind of a different direction. We see the only, the one problem with that was I was kind of up and down the relaxed rules. So on the one hand, usually with no DQ matches, what we see is the refs still acting like it's a DQ match where they're like yelling at the wrestlers to stop doing things that would normally be illegal. So in a way I like that it's relaxed rules because it still makes sense then for the refs to get on the wrestlers cases. But uh, on the other hand, I wrote down, here's the things we saw in this match. Let me just see here. By the end of this match, we saw a table spot, manager interference, chair shots, a person getting stabbed bloody with a fork multiple times. So at that point, it's kind of like, it should have just been called no DQ because if that's relaxed rules, that, that's not relaxed rules, that's coma rules. Like, what what would get you DQ'd if not, there, there's a spot in this match where you literally see the tines of a fork go into Samoa Joe's head and blood coming out of the holes in his head. Like... That, that 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 that's no DQ. Uh, yeah, I, I I yeah. Like, what is the point of the distinction? I get what you're saying, um, especially compared to like you said, the other no DQ match on the show, which you couldn't even tell was no DQ for half of it, and then they just like throw each other on chairs, and this one like like we said, fork stabbing. What is the point of the distinction? I don't know. It's one of the things that you think about an early ROH where you're like, okay, they were not exactly on the ball with this in terms of consistency. Um, for the match itself, I felt like, uh, it was, it was a little weird in the sense where it felt like chunks of this match were no DQ and then chunks of this match were just Joe and homicide trying to have their usual kind of like modern indie main event match. And I kind of, I think it would have been more interesting as someone who's seen these guys wrestle a lot if they just went all the way into the no DQ realm, but they give you a bunch of stuff there. Again, I feel like it was a different look for Samoa Joe because, I think he sold more for Homicide than he sold for pretty much anyone in his title reign up to this point. He let Homicide kick out of the Lariat and the Island Driver, which are moves he's won matches in this title reign with. He, you know, 
he, he did, they, they played off the do or die match where he goes for the second turnbuckle muscle buster again, which he won that match with, but homicide reverses it into an ACE crusher. So they do some neat callbacks there and, and, and some different things and just a really enjoyable match. And it, it is fun to see like homicide get closer to the win than a lot of guys do against Joe. And this also has maybe my favorite uh, Joe elbow suicida dive ever because the camera guy is looking at homicide straight on on the floor and we just see the apron in like the fringes and this is on a night of that of the camera missing stuff this is a night where the missing the thing made it great because you have no tip off at all that that Joe is doing a dive and he just comes into frame at a million miles an hour out of nowhere just crashes into homicide and it looks so great that might be like one of my favorite dives ever i just loved it and yeah this is also i guess the first time uh Gabe's this is the first time that Joe ever bled I don't know if that's true. He definitely bled from the hand when he cut on the guardrail at the second anniversary show. But yeah, in an example again of how much he was giving homicide, he lets homicide stab him with the fork and draws like legit blood on not, not a huge amount of blood, but multiple trickles of blood. So Matt, I've rambled on too long. What do you have to say about the match? You rambled on just long enough. Um, I, uh, I, pro- I actually, this one, I actually might have liked even slightly less than you. Um, I thought it was good, for sure. Um, I really loved the beginning. Um, because, you know, like I said, like, the, there was, like, tons of streamers for the announcement of the wrestlers. And then they fight in the, like, big thing. It's like, so, basically, they're tangled in streamers while, like, Joe does a backdrop onto Homicide. And even he has some streamers on him when he does that dive that you were just talking about. And I love when they start hot and heavy like that. And then Joe immediately goes from the dive to try the ole ole kick on Smokes and side cuts him off. And then he does the ole ole kick on Smokes. And I like that. Uh, I thought when they got into the ring, it kind of slowed down a bit, and I thought the crowd was kind of tired here. Um, they do like their trading headbutts, and Gabe reacts very much to the headbutts. But of course, having seen the Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson feud, these headbutts don't have quite the impact of those, but I'm sure they didn't feel good. Um, at one point, though, I do enjoy that Joe does like a stunt puller on Homicide for a second. You certainly don't see that move much in Ring of Honor. Um, but I do think that while Joe is in control, the crowd is pretty quiet. Um, of course, once Homicide goes for his dive and flies over Joe's head and through the table without even touching Joe, first of all, do you think that was intentional, that Homicide completely missed Joe on that dive? Um... I, I feel it's probably like homicide's probably knowing what that he's going to take the bump through the table and Joe's going to get out of the way. He's probably like aiming a little less. Yeah, like he's feeling like he has more leeway. So maybe he's not trying to completely miss Joe, but he's like, I can afford to take this higher because yeah. I know he's not going to be there. Yeah, I mean, I think it still works. Like sometimes you go through a dive and you miss, so he just he overshot. He went right through that table. Yeah. And then shortly after that is when he pulls out the fork. And I thought once the fork came out, I liked the match a lot more, which I don't know, sounds maybe sounds <laughs> depraved on my part. But um, I just said it made it different. You know, Gabe made a big deal about the fact that this was the first time 
that Joe was busted open, quote-unquote. Although I think it's less of a busting and more of a slicing. But um, <laughs> Joe, was, Joe was bleeding. And it's funny because actually the blood dried up pretty quickly. But then Homicide sliced him again while in the STF. And like you said, you could actually see the tines hit Joe and blood come out. So remember we, we used to ask, like, oh, is this an – is, is this an actual fork stabbing? Yes, it's an actual fork stabbing. Yeah, for people that want to say, oh, like, I remember, this is a weird anecdote, but um, I remember once my parents, they used to go out to breakfast at this place where all the elders went, and once they Oh, went, no, where is this going? I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> they went, they said, there's this old guy that works, that he, that's here, and he works, he says he used to wrestle for Stampede Wrestling, Trevor, and let me tell you, you know what he told us? He told us all blood in wrestling is fake. It's all ketchup. And I was like, Mom, <laughs> Dad, that has to be a crazy old man. I guarantee you he did not work for Stampede Wrestling if he thinks all blood in wrestling is ketchup. So I'm just going to say, if that old man is ever listening to this show, watch this spot where you see an extreme close-up of a fork go into a man's head and blood come out and tell me this is a ketchup-filled work fork because it is not. Oh, this that was the most annoying thing growing up when um – like, you know, you grow up and like people tell you that it's all like blood capsules. Not ketchup, I never heard, but blood capsules. And, you know, and then you find out once you get in, you know, get a little bit more inside knowledge. So maybe like I found this out when I was like 12, like online, you know, that about blading and stuff like that. And I would tell people like adults that I knew, like my friends, parents and stuff like that. You know, the guys cut themselves and stuff with, with razor blades. And... And the friends, of course, their parents are always completely incredulous. They're like, no, no, that's just what they want you to think. And I'm like, no, they want you to think that the other guy punched them into being bloody, right? That's what they – they don't want you to think that they cut themselves. Um, but yeah, like people who just – they would just think that you were naive because you knew anything about wrestling. Ugh, pet peeve. Anyway. Um, I, I remember as a kid finally convincing my mom, like showing her, like, look, look at this, mom. That's real blood. Like this, I don't, this is one of those things. Why was this important to me as like a 12 year old? But I remember finally convincing her and then being like, so they take a razor blade and they cut themselves in the forehead to make themselves bleed for real. And I was like, that's right. And she's like, that's so stupid. Why don't they use ketchup? And I was just like, God damn it. But it is one of those things where I think, too, it's weird because you're in this thing. So if they're not doing it for fake. They're cutting stuff in the head for real. And like you you get used to defending it as like a point of pride where to the average person that isn't a wrestling fan, that makes you sound like a crazy person. Like, yeah, you should respect this more because they're really like cutting their head and creating scar tissue. Like, Right, right. For me, it was more of like, a, hey, I know more about this than you for, for a change. <laughs> like, so you should trust me. But yes, no, exactly. It makes it seem depraved. It's pretty crazy, actually, like that during like the late 80s and like first half of the 90s when, you know, like HIV was, you know, obviously, you know, at its deadliest that there were just matches like war games matches where lots of different guys were bleeding on each other at the same time. But uh, hey, that's the wrestling business for you. It's crazy that like hepatitis did more to stop like hepatitis scares did more to stop bleeding and wrestling than HIV did, which I guess caused- maybe because I guess maybe HIV is just harder to transmit. Um, I, that's got to be it because you would think, you know, that like there, like this, this that would have become a thing in wrestling at some point, like, and it really never did. For people that don't, rem- I mean, I, I was very young during this era, but for people like I've watched documentaries on, for people that don't weren't around or don't remember like the initial era where HIV and AIDS really came to be known, there was like a real panic among segments of the populace were like you you would see news stories 
of like little hemophiliac children who had to get frequent blood transfusions getting run out of school by angry parents saying like, we're not going to let that kid give my kid AIDS, like not understanding how it tr is transmitted. It's it, 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 so it, it is wild to me in that environment that wrestlers, like no one really seemed to have a problem with like massive bloodbaths, which were common in the 1980s. Of course, that brings me to that, that kind of, I think, irresponsible HIV panic um, that that indie promotion had a few months ago where somebody was bleeding and they were like, everyone get tested um, just because I don't I, I don't want to get into it. But there is yeah. clearly like a uh, an ignorance about how that is spread and um, what the status of that is nowadays. But um, anyway, getting back to this. Um, one of my favorite parts was as Homicide was fork-stabbing Samoa Joe, Todd Sinclair goes, Hey, Homicide, knock it off! <laughs> he, <laughs> he really does that. <laughs> Go back, he literally says it. I thought that was so funny. It goes back to the relaxed rules. Like, if this is relaxed, like, what's a DQ? Like, does he have to shoot him? Like, I just like, Homicide, knock it off with this stabbing a guy in the face. Uh <laughs> It, it was. I, I'm gonna lose my temper if you if five more stabs, homicide. You get five more. Hey, it's homicide! Just... Stop being such a nincompoop. And <laughs> I don't know, but um, but that's what he said. No, he didn't say the nincompoop part. Just the <laughs> knock it off. Um, but yeah, that that makes the match memorable. And at this point, I think the match is really good. Like you said, goes, Joe goes for the muscle buster. Samoa Joe he reverses a pile driver into an Alabama slam. Um, hom homicide then actually hits the the pile driver for two. Uh, Joe does the slaps, the neck, the the STF um, by homicide, right? Then, um, then the island driver gets two. Then I like that he actually wins with the brainbuster because again, Samoa Joe has won a lot with different moves over the course of this feud. He's really only won with the muscle buster what three times, and two of them were top rope muscle busters. So he's still really establishing himself. By like 2005, I feel like he won with the muscle buster pretty much all the time. Um, almost all the time anyway, or the yeah, choke or, or, or the, or the choke, one of the two, but really at this yeah. point he wins with so many different things and you don't really see too many wrestlers doing that at this point. But, um, anyway, as far as the match, I thought it was a good, exciting match, but I wouldn't go much further than that. I, I think for me, it plays good just because, because I've seen so many Samoa Joe homicide matches, what this one has, even though it's not like the best in terms of actual in-ring action it's just variety to me which is like i i think i have maybe the one difference between how we feel is i appreciate a bit more like just oh i'm thankful that this is memorable in a different way i but, i i think that's fair i think that's a good point but but like, there's there's little playoff things like even stuff like you know homicide usually takes the standard joe urinagi in the corner where someone runs at homicide and joe grabs him and urinagis him and here in this time homicide like jumps off the second or top rope and joe catches him and does it from that position like little changes like that i just appreciate when guys do a little bit of work to uh switch things up and i agree i like that that joe can win in different ways and i like the idea that not every indie main event match has to be back and forth near ball near falls up to the last second where it's 50 50 i like the idea of this match where uh, homicide survived like the Island driver and a lariat and he doesn't make a big comeback. Like Joe grabs him, hits the brain buster and wins. And it's like, I like matches occasionally where is it's a thing where, okay, you've survived moves a through S 
but you're not going to make a comeback. I'm going to hit move T and that's going to be enough. I, I like that finality and it doesn't always have to be your move, my move, your move, my move, my move, just one. It's over. I like that. So it was funny because Gabe kind of almost like downplayed the finish because did you notice after the match, Gabe on commentary goes where he's talking about Joe Wayne, the brain muster, he's like, maybe not the most spectacular move, but you know, it got the job done. It's like, you don't have to underplay a brain buster. It's like he was kind of apologizing for it. But Yeah, I wonder if Gabe told him, like, hey, I don't want that to be a finish anymore. Hmm. Yeah. After the match, Joe shakes an unconscious homicide's hand, and then we cut to backstage where a somber prophecy is having a powwow. Moff and Whitmer are pissed at each other, as usual. Moff feels like Whitmer wasn't there for him during the match. Moff says he's going to give the prophecy thing one last shot, and if they can't pull it together, he thinks it's time to end the whole thing. He walks away. Uh, what I don't uh, get is he made a big deal about how if he does, they don't win the titles tonight, it's not going to work anymore. He's been like on the bubble of like getting quitting for a long time. So why is he giving one more chance? I, I wish that was explained more. Like what? Like like his motivation last time was okay. They had a taste of the titles, so we're going to try again. Now what is it though? He was already threatening at the beginning of the show if they didn't win tonight, he'd be given up. And now it's like, okay, if we don't win next time, I'm giving up. Yeah, it, it it didn't go anywhere this time, and it even doesn't quite play with the last show. Where the end of the night on the lat on round robin challenge three, it was like, all right, we're finally on the same page. Like we might not like each other, but we got to stick together because we proved we can be the champions. And now they lose one match, and they're like, well, time to end everything. Like, well, I actually think I remember where this is going, and I guess it actually kind of does pay off in terms of a surprising yeah way, um, which I won't say just just now. But I had sort of forgotten that, and so it was like, hmm. But now, but you know, have, remembering it, the payoff. I mean, it might be problematic for us, but it's uh, it is it is surprising. <laughs> Definitely surprised a lot of people. Um, and then finally, we cut back to the final segment at ringside, and I would say, Matt, that the number one thing Generation Next is known for is the formation of Generation Next and the forty plus minutes eight man tag. In uh, in a far back in second, it's remembered for being under the show that was done under the tent. I would say in a distant third, this is probably the third most thing this show is remembered for, which is we cut back to the the ring where Gabe is frantically telling us that Homicide has snapped again. Homicide is standing alone in the ring as the crowd chants his name, which kind of hurts the idea that he's like snapping in a scary way. Gabe says what happened when we were off the air was unbelievable. Uh, Smokes hands homicide the mic and he yells at the crowd saying he doesn't need their fucking cheers. They respond by cheering him more. Homicide then throws a temper tantrum at ringside, throwing chairs as Gabe screams on commentary. Gabe screams that homicide is demonic, has gone insane, and that nobody is safe. The demon has risen! Which, again, when you watch a bunch of smiling, laughing faces at ringside, escape is like, no one is safe. You know, like, eh. Gabe right. security and everyone is running when that is clearly not the case. <laughs> Gabe shouts until his voice starts to leave like JR at the end of a four-hour pay-per-view style, screaming that Homicide is going after the pillars of the tent. And we sign off, and this is what is remembered, as Gabe, as Gabe screams, evacuate, evacuate. And, yes. Uh, and of course, that's how the show ends. Like you said, the images on the screen don't match this, right? Because Homicide, I mean, he's walking around ringside just like throwing chairs, which wrestlers have done a bazillion times in history. Um, they say he's going after the pillars in the tent. You really don't see that happening. 
Um, and, and, the, and the fans are laughing and smiling and having a great time. So, yes, this just makes it seem like comedy. So that's, I guess, how we have to judge it. And it was very, very funny. So good job. Like, I feel like um, on Through the Years, we, we are pretty fair with Gabe commentary where I feel like some people really shit on Gabe's commentary on Ring of Honor. I, I think that's I think it's it's average. He has his definite negatives and definite pluses. And yeah, he has, himself, he has some strengths for sure. Gabe himself would probably admit that he wasn't a great commentator. But honestly, there, as we've documented on this show in painstaking detail, there were multiple people that were far, far worse than Gabe, a guy who wasn't you know ever aspiring to be a commentator you know, performed, but this is the kind of thing where like, there's no defending it. This is one of those things that people made fun of him for and remembered. And it's probably unfair that this colors a lot of people's memory of him period on commentary, but it definitely was like you said, like unintentionally hilarious. Yeah. And this isn't just his commentary skills that are bad here. Like this is just like bad, like writing and plotting like that you know, even if he got, if he hired like a great commentator to deliver that you know that point across it still made no sense because it was still homicide just like walking around ringside throwing chairs you know at what with a bunch of happy fans so like that just like even conceptually it's a failure i think it, it, this was on i think with the generation next plot like the, that whole show long angle and how gabe changed up his booking i feel like this is one of the best example uh examples this show of Gabe doing a really good job booking and, and big ideas and changing up like the norms of his shows like this is probably one of the better book shows in that sense that we've covered yet but then it has to end with probably like one of like the worst goofiest things he's done so far in the run which is kind of sad because otherwise this is like an example of Gabe I think at his best in some ways right a lot of this was Gabe at his best I would say the punks with Steamboat stuff obviously the Generation Next stuff um, in some ways, even the Joe homicide stuff. But then you also have, did you fucking shit in all bags, bro? And <laughs> and then this. So yeah. you got you got the you got more of the positive, the very positive. But you also got some of the really bad parts too. Which is another thing I think that makes the show really interesting is you kind of get like this grab bag of a lot of the best and the worst ideas of somebody while things are kind of in flux and exciting time. And no, no, it, no violence against women tonight, right? Nope. I mean, we got the long pandering camera shot to start the show, but yeah, no, no violence. Yeah. We did get the return of some homophobia, but take what you can get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know what they say, you know, ring of honor giveth and ring of honor taketh away. But, yeah. uh, so that brings us to the end of the show. And yeah, we've already, I guess we've already started talking about it, but, um, it's weird. I, I feel like this show there's no can't miss match out of this, but I feel like if you're a fan of like the historical aspects of Ring of Honor, or if you're a person like it's a must watch show, and I think if you're like us, it's a super interesting show if you're watching every show because it's just so different and so notable in a bunch of ways. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's it's almost like worse than average recent ROH in terms of match quality um, overall, but it's still one of the most entertaining shows I've ever done. Clearly some historic booking and some very successful booking, some silly stuff too. But overall, I'd say like in terms of like a whole package of entertainment, I'd say it's bordering on excellent and certainly, yeah. and certainly historic. 
and for a company like Ring of Honor that lives or dies generally on match quality, how many shows can you are we ever going to be able to say that about where it's like this show is really good kind of in spite of the wrestling not because of it like yeah. that's going to be a that's a really rare thing to say about Ring of Honor. Yeah, this but very show, very very few shows are going to be like that, but this is definitely one of them. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting, very notable show. And that brings us to the plug. So if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter. Uh, we post on the we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only message board and the Voices of Wrestling message board and their plug section forums. Um, I have a Patreon where I say really stupid things completely unrelated to this about ba- a bad message board. It is www.patreon.com slash Mecca Mecca. That's M-E-C-C-A twice. Um, And yeah, that's about it. And next time on the show, we will be covering another incredibly noteworthy show because we will be covering world title classic, the beginning of the famous Punk Joe three-match 2004 trilogy, 60-minute time limit draw. We will cover it next time. Yeah, I, 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 I was gonna. Say, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, like, yeah. I this this whole era is every every show from here on out for a while is just. I'm so excited. I've been, you know, we've been waiting for this few month period since we started the show. It's so cool that we're here. Yeah, like I'm really looking forward to the idea of like I love our guests, but I like just that this fall and winter it's gonna be like I said at the start of the show, like like just a cozy. Like this is so like my wrestling comfort food yes. and my nostalgia, but it's hitting all my nostalgia buttons and there's notable and really cool things on every show. Even though I've enjoyed like every show we've watched in different ways, like this is going to be a, like a really fun fall and winter to do this and to watch this. And it's going to be a blast. And so until that time, until next time, you should have a good time. Have a great time.